Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 261st episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's proud to offer NFTs of our best spec calls for the humble price of your dignity. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week, as always, is Travis Allen, at Wizard Bumpin' on Twitter, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everybody. Good evening, James. Glad to be here and looking forward to sharing all sorts of valuable information with all of you. Our show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to track your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Travis, busy night coming tonight. What is on the agenda this week? Oh, well, this week we start out uh, our beginning of year six here after our wonderful video debut, which I thought was pretty well received. That was fun. We're looking for opportunities to do that in the future. Good times. Um, going to start out with segment one, our MTGO Week in Review. Segment two, our top paper movers, cards that have moved the most in price this week, along with some top moto movers. Segment three, our paper cards to watch, some stuff James and I like the outlook on. And finally, segment four, our topic of the week, we're joined by Michael Cafferty. I think it's Cafferty. Cafferty. He can tell us when he gets here. Cafferty. Uh, Mm -hmm. Cafferty, owner of Tales of Adventure. So sure, and and a major player in the magic vendor space, uh, sure to be an interesting conversation. We rarely get a chance to speak to people with so much uh, inside ball knowledge. So let's go ahead and start here. Segment one, our MTGO metagame. We are looking at the Pioneer Challenge, uh, starting out with a black black red mid-range deck. It's got some Bone Crusher, Hazoret, Kalidas, Croxa, Magmatic Channelers, which I knew you were a big fan of, as well as some Blightstep Pathways. This This deck is just full of black and red cards people were hoping were specs. And some of which are actually going to get there. I mean, Crocs is doing very well. Mm-hmm. I do like the magmatic channelers. I think I know. I think you had tried to pitch me that on EDH a while ago, and I didn't care for it. And <laughs> you ran it up the flagpole with Jason, and he didn't like it either. But that's only as an EDH card. And I do like it as a competitive spec. And well, I don't think we're there at the moment um, because obviously there's still no paper magic, and we don't know if, what the. F- pioneer is going to look like when that eventually comes back it would be a card i would have on my uh, my short list i maintain that it's pretty much the red tarmogoyf um <laughs> i suspect it's gonna you know it's really i think for it to do very very well it needs to have a presence in one of either modern or commander um and so far it's pretty much on the fringes in both cases huh. but how many red tarmogoyfs have we gotten it's like four isn't it that the the two drop cycle they've tried like four times. Mm, that's not what least. I mean though. I don't like young young pyromancer is the red two drop cycle. I, 
Yeah, I, if I had if I had to take a guess, if if I had to say what is the red tarmogoy for me, it's monastery swift spear. <laughs> By tar- tarmogoy, I mean a mid range creature for mid range decks in the color red. Gotcha. The in terms of the two drop cycle. Yeah, it's definitely in Pyromancer, by the, which, by the way, is getting a sexy old border framing in uh, Time Spiral Remastered based on the spoilers today. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, everybody's liking that set. The other thing that jumps out at me about this list is that Blightstep Pathway, the uh, flip pathway from Kaldheim, has been broadly adopted as a four of in these black red decks in Pioneer. Um, so they have the black white one showing up in the black white Oros deck, which finished third in this tournament and then the black red one showing up in in this uh black red mid-range second place here was five color niv mizzet featuring such uh interesting cards as essica god of the tree two copies of that three copies of omnath despite not having cousin uro to help one valky uh one binding of the old gods uh four bring delight of course four growth spiral there's even a Devastating Coma Cosmos Serpent over in the sideboard. So mm. five color good stuff continues to be a viable strategy, it looks like. I, I will be honest that I am disappointed that this deck keeps playing Nahiri, but does not play Emrakul. And I say that as someone who owns a bunch of Emrakuls. <laughs> well, which Emrakul are you talking about? Promised End? Promised End, yeah. Because uh, the other one's not legal. Right. Format. Well, yeah, but is Promised End even good to put in with Nahiri? Uh, I mean, it is the at the outset of Pioneer, it was the best creature you could put in. It was the the biggest, baddest creature. Is it? Uh, I mean, you don't get its trigger. It's just a thirteen thirteen flying trample, trample protection, protection from instance. instance. Yeah, which seems, is like okay, seems fine. In Pioneer, you were uh, it was not easy to beat that. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so rounding out the rest of these lists, we have Mono Black Aggro in fourth with three Faceless Haven alongside three Rankle as notable potential specs. Faceless Haven is the 4-3 Snowland um, that you activate for three snow mana, and it has Vigilance, which is pretty solid. This uh, card has shown up on TCG Player's bestsellers for the last two or three weeks running which I find surprising. It's interesting because it can attack and block or attack and tap for mana in the same turn. Um, and a, a, immediately requires that these decks are running all Snowlands if this is going to be their configuration, which yeah. makes me look a little harder at Snow Swamps from Modern Horizons, for instance. Mm-hmm. That's a mana sink if you try and pull that off. Um. You, you, in third place, we, we jumped over it real quick, was uh, another um, black-white Auras deck, uh, notably with four Srams, who is also getting the old border treatment. Right. And then red-white aggro in fifth with four chained to the rocks in the sideboard. Six is Sultai Control with three Dig Through Time and four Shark Typhoon amongst a, a variety of Sultai Control cards. Coco Aristocrats is my new name for this deck that runs both Collected Company and Bolus of Citadel. Coco Aristocrats. Try that one on for size. <laughs> four Bolus of Citadel, four Priest of the Forgotten God uh, in this deck. And 
pretty pretty tasty and top eight of two weeks in a row so looks like a, a force to be reckoned with in the format black vampires has dipped into white a little bit apparently they're still running four soren and a variety of vampires but have added two blood baron of the scopa this is the uh, big boy vampire uh, three white black for a four four with lifelink protection from white and from black as long as you have 30 or more life and an opponent has 10 or less life, it gets plus 6, plus 6, and has flying. So you just start hitting them upside the head with a 10-10 lifelinking pro-white, pro-black. Yeah, that card, uh, anyone who was playing back in the Return the Ravnica days remembers that as being the only other card from Dragon's Maze worth more than the cost of a pack. Uh, how it, I, It's... Almost unfortunate that we're playing in paper, or we're not playing in paper, because how many people do you think would try and target their Blood Baron of Viscopa with Soren's plus one, not realizing that you can't, because he has protection for black? Mm. Yep, that's pe pe true. But you can, well, it depends which that. plus one you're talking about. The one that gives it Death Touch and Lifelink would only be giving it Death Touch, which it probably doesn't need. <laughs> we'll get to 1-1 one, one counter too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the other plus one still works, where you can sack a vampire and uh, drain three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I'm, I noticed that it's the pro-black, and I'm like, oh, the Soren's black, and people would definitely try to target him to give him plus one just for some more life points and be like, oh, wait, you can't do that. Also worth noting that they, they run four Bright Climb Pathway in this deck now, too, in over without running full complement of Shocks. It's only two Godless Shrine and two Isolated Chapel, but four Bright Climb Pathway. That raises an interesting question. Uh, how much do we have to consider card availability when we're talking about Arena sometimes, or um, Moto sometimes? I do wonder. You know, we don't discuss it too often. Uh, what are what are shocks? What do shocks cost on Moto right now? They can't be very expensive. No. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't expect as much, but it does, whenever I see something like that, it's like, hmm, that they just have bright. Maybe they swapped into bright climbs just to see, or two, uh, yeah, bright climbs just to see how it handles relative to the shocks is kind of a test, a two-two split to get a feel for it. Let me see what the cheapest godless shrine is on GoatBots right now. No, nah, a lot of time. No, nah, they're a they're they're six they're sixty-five cents, my friend. Okay, so I don't <laughs> yeah, think that's, that's the problem. Cheap. That's pretty cheap. Uh yeah, I would, you know, whenever it comes to swapping, you know, land changes like this, which are tend to be incremental improvements, uh, you kind of just got to play them and see how it works. It's hard to theory craft whether it would be better or not. You just got to put them through our paces and find out. True enough. So looking at the modern challenge, hammer time in first. Blue Black Mill in second, this time running two Maddening Cacophony in the full suite of four Glimpse the Unthinkable. Third and fourth, Blue White Control. This is just a pile of blue white counter spells and creature control cards with the usual expected Teferis and Narsets and so forth. Mm -hmm. Blue Red Prowess in fifth with four Stormwing Entity. Amulet Titan, a constant presence in modern top eights. It's almost one every week, pretty much. Four Titan, four Dryad of the Elysian Grove, of course. Probably the most interesting list of the week over in Modern is the Esper Artifacts list, which we've seen flavors of uh, in the past, but had disappeared for a while. Now seems to be back on the agenda. This is um, 
4 Emery Lurker of the Lock, 4 Stoneforge Mystic, 4 Urza Artificer, 1 Lurus, which presumably, which is, interestingly can only bring back the Stoneforge Mystic. Hmm. Right? I guess it's just, let's see. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, this does not, for, the official Magic Web page does not parse that Lurus as a hover over. That is so obnoxious. There must be something about the way they coded the companions into their system. But yeah, I mean, you have 12 creatures, but only four of them can be brought back by Lurus. And Lurus isn't in the sideboard here. He's in the main. No, okay. Uh, yeah, he's got to be main deck because uh, this has a permanence that costs over two. Yep. So Lurus is just in the deck. And only for Stoneforge. Yeah, which is so odd. The rest of this deck is a Tezzeret, Agent of Bolas, three Metallic Rebuke, which is your cheap counterspell if you have a ton of artifacts. Uh, okay, it's not... Stoneforge is the only creature it can return. But this casts permanent spells from your graveyard, which means you can recur your Engineered Explosives or your Baubles, your Nile Spell Bombs... Uh, your Thopter Foundries if they get blown up, so you've got some good some flexibility. Good point. I I run Luris in the deck that I'm playing on Arena right now, but I because I own, basically only have creatures in it, it never I completely spaced on the ability to return permanence, which is pretty cute with all the other stuff in here: Chromatic Stars and Engineered Explosives, Mishra's Baubles, Mox Amber's Nihil Spell Bomb, sort of the Meek and Thopter Foundry can all be yeah. brought back by Lura, so it's actually a lot sexier than I was giving it credit for. The um, the Engineered Explosives recursion in particular is a, a long-standing favorite of true degenerate control decks that just plan on blowing crap up over and over and over and over and over and over again until your opponent has nothing left. So I have plenty of uh, Extended Art and Foil Extended Art Emery's. I've got some Urza's that I haven't buy-listed yet, and I've certainly got some Foil Borderless uh, Stoneforge Mystics in both English and Japanese. So by all means, let this deck do well for the rest of the year. Yeah, I have. Uh, I don't think I'm quite as deep on this list as you are, but I have several Urza's that I bought when he was shaping up to be the hot thing in Modern, and then they banned uh, uh, Arkham's Astrolab. And he kind of disappeared, and that was a bummer. So if he could show up in Modern again, I would appreciate that. I'm, I'm curious whether the Kozilek in the sideboard comes in against Mill. He could. Good. I mean, you could accomplish the same thing with Emrakul, but uh, I guess effectively the same thing. He doesn't have any cost reduction mechanics. It's possible this deck is trying to cast it, but that given that we've got two other mill, yeah, you know what? We've got two other mill decks in the top eight here. That's got to be what it's for. Well, one in the top eight, but we do see one, it. One in top eight. But it, 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 it could easily be a nod to the presence of the deck in the format. Yeah. I mean, if mill's running around, throwing one uh, of the Eldrazi in your sideboard is a perfectly fine sideboard plan because it's going to make their life more miserable trying to answer that single card uh and it's such a, a very essentially slot efficient way of dealing with that problem I, i'm getting the ch 
But Eldrazi hits the stack as it hits the graveyard. The trigger hits the stack. They yeah. could they could exile it in response if they have the right graveyard targeting. But you're going to yeah. get at minimum you're resetting the game to 60 cards or 53 cards or whatever. Yep. Back when I played Mill and Modern occasionally uh, and you went up against, I think it was Tron or somebody who would have one Emrakul in their main deck or even after a sideboard, your plan was like, okay, I have to just mill them until I find that Eldrazi, exile it. Basically, you could not cast any mill cards until you had your breaking entering set up or whatever other effect you had main deck to exile it. Then once you had that available, then start milling them, hit the Emrakul, exile it, and then go in on your mill cards to try and finish them. Needless to say, you rarely won those games. <laughs> it was a little better after sideboard, but those were some ugly game ones. Right. Eighth place in this is Mono White Taxes for Giver of Runes for Skyclave Apparition for Stoneforge Mystic to Archon of Amiria, Sword of Fire and Ice, Sword of Light and Shadow for Ether Vial, etc. Nothing too uh, new or exciting in that list, but yep. uh, worth noting that it is still top eighting in this in this new modern. Still good magic cards. Moving us right over to the top paper movers of the week. Tons of action again. Literally hundreds and hundreds of old cards and old foils are on the march. Seems yeah, you, you, say you've been in charge. You you have taken over putting filling out this top paper movers section um, the last couple weeks, and I hadn't pulled up. I need the data sources to, to check it uh, in the last two or three weeks or so. But today I pulled it up while I was looking around and I was like, my God, the, you are not kidding. There were like, like you said, like tens and tens and tens uh, price spikes in both foils and non-foils. And it's all like legends and seventh edition foils and mercadian masks and it's like ugh. it's non-foils from the first non-foils from the first three years of magic including reserve list and stuff that's just either iconic or just necessary for sets and separately old foils from the first like three or four years of foils in magic and i think the premise there is that speculators and vendors are expecting the hobby to pivot even further towards the collectability aspect again given the trend line for the last year given what's continuing to happen with pokemon and other games given what's happening with nfts and collectibles more broadly and just the constant chatter about collectibles as um investable uh assets that aren't, aren't nearly as crazy now as they seemed 10 years ago and when they're looking at old border foils in particular, they're 20 years old plus, pretty hard to find in great condition, so even harder to grade than your average magic card. And we're now in an era where foils are not well regarded and typically aren't gradable out of the pack. Like, you're going to have trouble getting a 10 on a Commander Legends foil, that's for sure. Oh, like, I would have to think that that's virtually impossible. So even, even for cards that aren't on the reserve list and are going to see plenty of printings, the original printing, whether or not it ever gets reprints later, grade that up, and if the community of people that are collecting grade, graded magic cards 
know, doubles or triples in the next couple of years. Those, the folks that get in early on that stuff, especially if they got in before all the grading prices went up, because <laughs> that's happened recently as well. And the grading companies are just in, in a name our price kind of scenario, right? Like they're basically a oligopoly and mm-hmm. two or three players in the market. They all basically can just coordinate on prices, raise them across the board and, that way they get to keep the hype cycle flowing. Because if they if they just did a mass hiring, right? They hired a thousand more graders and plowed through the back inventory and got all caught up, the market would be flooded with freshly graded cards. Especially in, say, Pokemon. Yeah, I have a friend who just sent his in and it's something like a six month turnaround time. Yeah, and it could be six to twelve, depending on which which grading uh, level of grading service you select. And now the like per card fees are up so much at PSA and uh, uh, likely at BGS. the other yeah BGS, but, but also CGC. Like I think everybody by the end of the year will just be more pricey if they haven't already announced price changes because they can do it. So they yeah. will. I mean that's the the nature uh, of the beast. So I mean, bottom line. People smell blood. They smell that you, you can go after these old foils, buy some old collections for people that aren't up to speed on what's been happening this year. You're going to have a bunch of people that are like, could be found through contacts that are like, oh, wow, you, you'll take my foil binder for that much? That sounds good. But really, they're, they're getting 30 or 40 cents on the dollar as to what it's possibly worth today. I mean, to find, yeah. if I was picking up the super collection today that I bought in 2015, the quote unquote super collection. The, you know, that was a thirty to thirty-five thousand dollar U.S. collection, and today's value on that collection is probably closer to eighty k, would be my guess. I mean, every binder had four, basically a playset of non-foils and the the foil on the backside. Yeah, yeah, I remember you talking about it. Uh, yeah. That would be worth a chunk of money. I'm sure Cafferty will have some things to say about <clears throat> the sort of collectability of just magic cards and the collectible universe as a whole when he's on later because he seems to, to comment on that frequently. Um, but yeah, it's wild. And, you know, we've talked, we've seen a little bit of, not just in this regards with, with these cards spiking right now, but we've been getting a flavor of of this uh these collectible or these very old cards that are possibly gradable have been there's been discussion of that moving um and apparently the pokemon hype train i guess is i'm gonna say stalled out a little bit or at least slowed down from what i understand and a lot of people are kind of like "Ooh, is magic gonna be next there's already a little bit of a whisper about it from some other sources and it does make you wonder if it's worth trying to get involved in that a little more aggressively uh, I haven't dipped my toe in that space really. I'm not entirely sure how convinced of it I am. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know how much Pokemon has the hype train has really slowed down. They had a made a record-setting box break via Logan Paul just this weekend. They had a it was a 1.1 million dollar box break, yeah. so, something like thirty three thousand dollars a pack, and the crazy part about it was so does it, so do you mean that the return the, the the value of what he opened was that high is what you're saying no i'm, I'm saying he sold the box a pack at a time 
$33,000 a slot, which was a pack, and oh. they raised $1.1 million on an original box of Pokemon, first edition. Uh, I see. So he, I, I did not realize, okay. So what, did he ever say what he paid for the box? I, I don't think that was brought up on, on the cast, but I would guess that the box may have changed hands. I don't know the providence. I, I have to go back and check. But if I was a betting man, as I am, I would guess that that box has already changed hands maybe twice this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and at each juncture, I bet who the person selling it thought they were making out like a bandit. And let's yeah. and let's say Logan Paul picked that box up for I don't know half a million, three quarters of a million. I don't know when he acquired that specific box, but I would guess it's probably recently because he's already done other box breaks on things that he acquired at lower prices. But profits were ridiculous on it. And more to the point, they opened two really good-looking Charizard first editions. Mm-hmm. Arguably half million to three-quarter million dollar cards, given the providence of where they, like, the break in question. They also got a Venusaur, a Blastoise, which are the other two big hitter, heavy hitters. They got a Mewtwo. They got a Chansey. The, the point I'm making is that as you would think on a million dollar box break that maybe one person would make it like a bandit, pull the Charizard and everybody else would get rooked as would tend to happen with a magic box break. Like if they're, if channel fireball is doing a box break of legends, somebody might pull them out, but everybody else might get wrecked yeah. or like, or like two people might do well, but everybody else will get wrecked. Or you open a revised box and one guy gets a uh, underground C for $900 and everyone else just gets four basic lands and their pack is worth $17. Yeah. Whereas in this case, it looked like the, the street value of the cards pulled might actually have, have been closer to 1.5 million, which means that the next break is probably going to be priced at 1.5 million. Which... I mean, for a single box of Pokemon cards, which doesn't, I, I, which doesn't make the most sense. It makes sense if you're Logan Paul. Uh, it's like if you look at that box opening, you go, okay, well, the odds of the, those cards haven't gotten pulled like that is pretty low, just because that box was worth, you know, one point five million. There's no guarantee whatsoever that the next box will be worth anywhere near that in fact if you look at his box and go this is essentially the top of the line like you couldn't realistically open a better box the price shouldn't go up unless the street value of the cards go up but that's a separate price mechanism i i don't know anything really i don't have any special insight about pokemon i'm just relaying you know kind of the 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 sentiment and one or two tweets I've read from out in the ether that are like, well, you know, the the Pokemon stuff isn't exploding as fast. And it seems like there's a little bit of attention pivoting, maybe in some of the other YouTuber names. I'm not sure, you know, that all of that's a bit of a black box for me because I'm not a well, Gen Z. Considering how insane the last year was for Pokemon, there has to be a plateau at some point. That's a, a natural mm-hmm. part of the process. But, right, right. but for instance, I, I snapped off with a partner in the UK this weekend. There was a 25th anniversary. Because it's the big thing about Pokemon this year is it's the 25th anniversary. Uh, in t- 2021, as you're saying. Correct. Yeah. So the there was a 25th anniversary uh, like fashion launch on Zavi, which is was mostly famous for being a like uh, um, 
DVD blue steel uh, metal collectible box supplier a few years back, but has pivoted more deeply into collectibles on in a broader sense. Long story short, they had a UK exclusive on Pokemon gear, 2,500 pairs of these Pokemon uh, high tops, which were quite handsome. And then these fashion bundles that were like a t-shirt, a sweater, and a little handbag or something. And we snapped off 10 pairs of the shoes and eight of the bundles or something. They're immediately flippable on eBay for double. I, I will take your word that the Pokemon sneakers are uh, handsome. I, I am not inclined to agree with that, but uh, I'll allow it. I'll allow it. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll send you a picture. You can determine it for yourself. But if when you say the word Pokemon sneakers, I don't imagine them. <laughs> handsome is not a word I would expect <clears throat> to associate with that. Yeah, but that's because your aesthetic is deeply rooted in the cover of GQ and doesn't take into consideration the cultural shift that's going on where mainstream like childhood brands are becoming synonymous with high fashion. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know that I'm not the market for them. And, you know, I see some of the AF1s that get posted and some of them I, I think are very cool looking. And there's a... You know, if I ever left my house, I would could consider wearing something like that uh, if it weren't for the ridiculous, you know, I'm never going to buy them, but the prices are listed, but I, I would wear them in a different setting. Uh, but aren't Pokemon's colors like blue and yellow? Isn't that sort of the... Yeah, but these these were like shoes by designers for designers. I'll show you here. Yeah, shoot it to me over on Discord there and I'll take a look. This This isn't like Pokemon shoes for children. This is like... Pokemon shoes for graphic designers. Okay, so those are they're fine. They're just they're Converse, but instead of the Converse logo, it's a Pikachu. Yeah, but they're twenty fifth anniversary limited to twenty five hundred pairs Pikachu. Oh well, I mean, I under <laughs> yes, I understand that. I'm just talking with, about with, purely with, from the with Japanese standpoint. lettering on them, and they're in a monochrome palette with like very minor Pikachu yellow accents. These things, I probably would try to get 300 US for these in the US market since they literally weren't, weren't sold there and it's the biggest addressable market. I'm honestly surprised it would be that low. I would have guessed uh, twice that or more. Well, they were they were asked. like 72 US on Saturday. Yeah, I don't... On Saturday. N- knowing the my limited knowledge as it is, I would expect these, you to be able to get a grand for these. What with the Pokemon hype... Sneaker hype, the fact that they're not in the U.S. You've only got twenty five hundred. The J shoes are as expensive as they are. Well, and I think we can both agree these are like leagues better looking than the J shoes. Yeah, and to be uh, to be fair, the J shoes are kind of what I had in mind when you said Pokemon shoes, like just with a different color palette. I, I would never basically. be caught dead wearing the J shoes. I would definitely wear these. Yeah, I mean, these are, you, you could wear these, and for the most part, people probably wouldn't even notice they were Pokemon or they were gaudy. They would just like black, look like black and white sneakers to most people. All right, so moving right along here, we may as well get into these top movers. Yeah, that's oh, very important. Crocs, a titan of death's hunger, Theros beyond death, 25 to 31, 32. It's only 26% gains, but I'm flagging this because I think this card's headed for $50. With Uro uh, injured in terms of his price potential in the short to midterm based on the perceptions around cards that are recently banned in multiple formats. Croxa stands to be the biggest gainer from that set. 
Uh, sure, he has seen some decent play recently, um, and we're seeing some price movement here. So, you know, these these little small bumps like this sometimes fly under the radar several weeks in a row, and suddenly the card is twice the price it was two months ago, and we didn't even notice it. Um, so interesting to keep an eye on that here. It's been a slow, steady gainer that's just going to keep going, because is what it is. Ulamog the Infinite Gyre out of uh, Rise of Eldrazi, original printing, non-foil, 60 to 90-something. OG version up 50%. There's never going to be any more of the original printing, no matter how many times they reprint this. Yeah, and the reprint was in Modern Masters 2, which kind of had not the greatest card stock. Yep. Uh, so that doesn't see at 90 bucks i mean i remember uh Kozilek, before the modern masters reprint kozlak was a hundred dollars non-foil um so not too surprising to see this in that general direction on thin ice foils at a modern horizons pretty sure this was a pick of mine way back down the road ten dollars to 15 mh1 foils are draining out i would imagine there is just a handful of these left lying around and then it won't take too long for them to disappear. Yeah, not uh, not the deepest stock to begin with. Yeah, there's. It looks like foil, like non foils are still only a dollar, but foils there are three, four, four copies total left on TCG Player between fifteen and twenty dollars. Okay, Verderus Gearhulk, the uh, masterpiece inventions, looking like they're going forty to sixty-five, um, has generally not been the terribly popular. Gearhulk, uh, especially in EDH, I, I did not pull up all five Gearhulks before we started here, but I would have to guess that Verderus is actually pretty low down the list, um, even though it was a, a strong player in Standard, his effect in EDH is uh, less interesting than the other Gearhulks for the most part. But even still, we're seeing some good price movement here on the inventions, and I don't think we're done here either we're going to i'm sure keep talking about some of these like lesser inventions and um the invocations most likely box in the coming ultimate weeks. masters box toppers etc i mean these are clearly being targeted by vendors and speculators for the most part over overlaid across a natural demand profile but that's not going to change the fact that there's seven copies left across two listings on tcg player right yep Someone, people will uh, will manage to move the needle on these. Library of Alexandria, Arabian Nights, sixteen hundred to twenty six hundred or so, and there's like something. There's a copy last sold in and around that range. I've got two of these. I've been holding on to that I buy listed into. I think two years ago, near a thousand. Just hold, hold, hold. Just that, <laughs> that stuff just lives in the hold box where it will yeah. tend to outpace most people's portfolios. Those are going to end up paying for uh, Lara's college. The whole box is looking like is basically six figures at this point. So if college still exists when she gets there, I suppose that will be an option. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I have a library, I think, but it's, is it English? I might be English. I don't remember. In, in any case, regardless, a nice card to have a couple copies of. And frankly, like I, I think you could buy these at 2500 and not be upset about it. I don't think Arabian Nights has non-English, right? Legend, uh, Legends might, does. Yeah, it might not be non-English. 
that might be correct. Yeah, and and the print run on Arabian Nights, even compared to something like Legends of the Dark, is it's significantly less. So yeah. the, this was always going to get there and pump harder. Gradable copies, I'd be in no rush to sell those at all. I'd be sending those in for grading for sure. Easily justified at this point. Yeah. Yeah, the, the $50 card price is a lot easier to stomach when you're talking about a you know nearly $3,000 card. I, I, and um, I think it, the prices definitely go up depending on the value of the card, if I'm not mistaken, depending on who you're grading with. But yeah. it's still going to be worth it because if you can if you can get at least an eight and preferably a nine plus, then you're gonna you will be able to command a premium over market. Yeah, which is a, which is a little different. Magic generally hasn't cared too much about gradeability on anything other than the true, like basically the power nine and a couple cards outside of that. But it is spreading beyond that um, for sure. Uh, but as I was saying, I, th I think you could buy library at 2,500 and probably not regret it. You know, it, it might be three or four years possibly before this really pokes its head again, because that seems to be the sequence that we we've seen here, you know, two to three years, but like this will move again and it'll be four grand or something like that. I, I don't think this plateau is going to last that long. I think this time is different. I think that the inventory is drying up and consolidating in deep deep pockets. And I could easily see library being 4,000 plus within the year. Uh, yeah. So something to consider. I have, uh, I have some odds and ends. I should move around and see if I can score any more of these. Probably worth poking around on your Facebook groups and stuff, because if someone has one of these floating around, you might be able to get it for, you know, two grand or something like that in a, off-page sale there's a lot of sharks in the water right now i i don't i don't really go out of my way to buy collections these days but if i was i, I feel like there'd be a lot of misfires trying to get deals done because there's just so mm. much interest to like find the hidden binders that are out of date <laughs> to that's versus the current action that's probably fair it's but i gave up buying collections a couple years ago because my local climate in particular buffalo uh went from like basically two stores neither which one of them were great and i i could buy collections frequently to like nine stores and the competition for buying collections just became outrageous uh and i just had to give up you used to find a collection posted on craigslist like once every few weeks and i hadn't seen one for months and months when i finally just deleted the tab yeah i mean i don't even bother to look at that stuff because it's it almost always ends up being like these bags of cards with like the bait card on the top and if there was ever anything even remotely good you're gonna get like in toronto city 10 million people in the surrounding area you're gonna get 600 calls on a decent collection in the first 48 hours yeah, definitely a different dynamic over there where you just have such a higher population density. So we got Necropotence, original Ice Age copies, in theory 46 to somewhere close to 80. Or original version, and they're going to keep printing this card, but they're not going to reprint the original version. It's just still this the original. so unreal to me. I can't tell you how many Necropotences I have seen. Not own, owned past tense. Like, I bet you I have... I wouldn't be surprised if I have now thrown out several hundred dollars worth of necropotences. Like, 
just had, you know, had had picked some collection clean, you know, Ice Age didn't have the rarities printed on it. So identifying the rares was obnoxious. Necropotence was banned in every format and was worth, you know, 60 cents or something. It was like, what, what, what am I doing with this? Like, this is just annoying. I'm trying to move. It's heavy. And I just like tossed that shit in the recycling because why bother picking through it? Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Chain Lightning Masterpiece uh, Invocations from Amonkhet, 30 to 50. Invocations are drying up alongside the other Masterpieces. Elvis Champion Non-Foil 7th, 14 to 27. We talked last week about how all the Elvis Champions and several other Elves were on the move. Uh, this one in particular has is was printed many times about 15, 10, 15 years ago, and then hasn't caught much in the way of reprints since. So these, mm-hmm. these older versions, harder to find. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, there's no surprise. I mean, I, it's kind of weird to me to think that Elvis Champion non-foil copies could end up carrying a significant price tag because it's been printed something like 14 times. The foils are probably in a better shape because several of the printings were did not have foil editions and also had, would have been under pressure for a long time now at a very different scale. Um, so that doesn't surprise me too much. A lot of 7th edition foils in general were on the the list this week i noticed that was i mean we, we see those every week but this week in particular seemed like a pretty heavy list yeah because you got this card in invasion seventh eighth tenth sorry seventh eighth ninth and tenth edition but that was a long time ago and then the june there was a junior super series promo that's stone cold ugly uh yeah. and there was a reprint of the other art um from 9th and 10th edition and Invasion as a Duels of the Planeswalkers promo. But again, all that stuff is years ago. So not an easy card to find, and they're expensive more or less across the board. Yep. I mean, those the super ugly JSS versions are market price 172 Yeah, those are great. Wild. Like... One of the most impressive ratios in terms of price to ugliness. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, moving right along here, we've got Shauku, the Endbringer from Mirage. Terrible reserveless card. Five to ten dollars. No big surprise what's going on there. Speaking of old border foils being targeted, Rancor, which is a foil common from Urza's Legacy, which was first set ever with foils, I believe. Uh, $95 to mm, pushing 200 depending on what you're referencing. Old border foils like this that people have... I mean, this 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 card has delivered many beatings over the years, so it will be near and dear to somebody's heart. And not super surprised to see it show up on the list of foils uh, under attack. Multani Marrow Sorcerer is a reserveless card, also from that set. Non-foils from 11 to 26. Stormseeker is just the original printing out of Legends, 10 to 40 or so, old card targeting. Uh, Mother of Runes from Urza's Legacy. Foils went from 40-ish to whatever you want to call it, mid-hundreds, 150, 160, 170. Uh, I would imagine people are fishing there, hoping to grade some of those. Uh, I have trouble believing that foil Mother of Runes, original pack full Mother of Runes was only $40. That does not sound correct to me. That seems like a possibly errant data point. Well... Let's find out. I could be wrong, but that's uh, that was a spicy meatball for a very long time. Completed listings. 
uh, ended recently. Yeah, so there's just as recently as late December, there were copies changing hands between fifty and seventy-five dollars on eBay. Yeah, I mean, seventy-five is still less than I would probably have guessed, but it sounds closer than forty. Like forty-eight was the last near mint copy that traded hands under fifty on eBay. Yeah, that's that's cheaper than I would have expected, to be honest. I mean, original foil mother runes, card that can be played that... in Legacy. Yeah, I mean, that was like a top three white card in Legacy and possibly still is. It's like Path, Mother of Runes, and what else? What other white card is that good in, in Legacy? Yeah. Uh, not that that has a big deal. It's a big deal today. Um, but, you know, Mom has always been playable in EDH as well. Yeah, something like Terminus or Stoneforge Mystic or something would be up there too. But yes, uh, Rorik's Blade Wing out of Onslaught foils 3 to 30-ish, you know, sure. yield 500 to 1,000% gains if you have random old foils like that sitting around. And I know I in my like acrylic cases of old foils, there are definitely a couple of those cases full of foils that I have yanked out of old sets that I have bypassed in the past because they were less than $5. So very curious to go through those in the near future and see what's actually still sitting there. Yeah, I have uh, a couple of rows of foil rares that weren't worth it before that I have not looked through in quite some time, and I kind of wondering what's hiding out in there. But I'm also willing to bet it's just a ton of like awful guilds of Ravnica or uh, what was it? What was the other? There was Return the Ravnica. I oh, God, I can't remember the rest of the sets from that. Guilds of Ravnica. Return... It was Guilds of Ravnica yeah. and War of the Spark. No, 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 not that Ravnica. It was Return the Ravnica. Oh, Guild Pact and Dragon's Maze. Those are the sets that I'm sure, thinking Sure, sure, sure. Like probably just a bunch of Guild Pact foil. Or not Guild Pact. Gate Crash foils, I'm assuming, is what I've got. <laughs> Mountains of in there, and they're all Fair. worthless. Stang, another... This is just a stand-in for a ton of Legends cards I, that were clearly targeted. I cannot... I have. I cannot believe this guy's name is Stang. It's Stang? St- Stang? I want to say Stang. Like I feel like it should be a long A. Come on, there's a lot of bad names in Legends. <laughs> I can yeah, easily like, believe his name is Stang. Stang. My name's Stang. Now I can't. I can't in good conscience support that pronunciation. I don't. I don't care if it's right. I'm right. I'm uh, retconning it. Ten to a hundred or whatever people are getting for them right now. Sure. And then the biggest mystery on here: Reckless Fireweaver foils dried up. This is a Kaladesh common. Foils dried up one to I don't know fifteen twenty dollars. There's just not a lot left lying around. Presumably this is because this can be played in Popper, but I wasn't able to locate it in a recent Popper Top 8, so... Question marks. Uh, I saw this as well, and I was wondering if it popped up in a um, Command Zone video or something, and they put it to good use Possible. in some deck with a bunch of little artifacts and just blew people up. Possible. Over on with the Top Magic Online Movers of the Week, we've got Elder Gargaroth going from 20 tickets to about 28 tickets or so, 40% gains. We've got various versions of Wasteland on the move for about 50% gains from early low 40s tickets to mid 60s tickets. Ethereal Forager still moving uh, from Commander uh, 2020, 14 to 21 tickets. I've got a couple play sets of those sitting around that are going to make me money apparently. I guess I should get on uh, taking a look at selling those. 
And then Carpet of Flowers has been discussed in our uh, Magic Online Speculation Discord. People were wondering whether they should be shorting it or betting on it to go up. And so far, the odds are in favor of the going up. Uh, 24 tickets or so to about 37 tickets for 56% gains this week. That's interesting that they would be split between whether it's going to go up or they get to short it. You usually don't... uh have quite that separate of an opinion it's more like well yeah this is probably going to go up but like fast enough to make it a spec and maybe not like i don't know if this is going to go up or down like that's it's tricky if something magic finance it's that's less it's tricky if something's at an all-time high um but looks like the highest we've seen carpet of flowers in recent memory was something like 45 tickets november 10th 2020 and it got as low as 19 tickets on february 18th and since then has been climbing 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 so if you shorted it back in november and then and got out at a local low early december you could have cleared something close to 15 or 20 ticks a copy and then if you got in at the low February 17th or so, you'd already be up almost a double up. Yeesh. So this this thing's been roller coastering all over the place. Carpet of money. Carpet of money. All right, moving on over to our cards to watch. Plow through this so we can get with our friend Michael Caffrey. Um, let's see. Sorry, Caffrey, not Cafferty. Caffrey, Michael Caffrey. Caffrey. I yeah, I thought my pronunciation was wrong, but I wasn't sure. Yeah, Michael Caffrey, no T in there. Uh, apologies, Michael. The first pick of mine is pretty obvious. Heroic Intervention. Out of Core Twenty One, came out last summer. Forty-five thousand EDH rec decks. You can pick up copies in Europe around six bucks. It's going to get to twenty. Zero doubt in my mind. Yeah, we I, I did a, a quick search and we this has come up on the cast before, um, but I think they were different versions. I was probably so, talking about the extended art foils in the summertime. Yeah, and but and you've here you just have uh, this is just regular, just the bog standard most basic version of heroic intervention. But this card is wildly popular uh more so than i ever would have guessed prior to having been printed um but you know if you're picking them up for six bucks what what's the low in america right now like what's the tcg low 10 9 to 10 bucks oh yeah yeah that's real good then six bucks in europe six twenty dollars is a little aggressive but i think 15 is probably right on the money given the how expansive the play pattern is in edh with just 60 listings left and no major walls like the most copies anybody's got listed here is eight or nine there's there's no no 200 copy walls sitting around uh even for this version and the buy list support is already pushing 10 bucks as is i think card kingdom when i checked the other day was offering uh updated they are offering Nine dollars or eleven seventy credit for other revolt copies, and for core twenty one set copies, eight dollars 
and 1040. So if you're picking them up in Europe at six, you're looking at picking up a 33% return, even if you just flip them to buy a list immediately. And if you have and them if, ship, and if you go with credit, you're up 450. Have them ship from MKM directly to. Uh... That unfortunately is not easy to do, but <laughs> sounds sounds lovely on paper. Yeah, uh, my only I I think that this is absolutely going to just keep rising. I mean. The, the play pattern is there. There's no debating it. My only concern here um, is reprints because I think Wizards is probably going to make a point of putting this in players' hands pretty regularly given the popularity, um, especially I think it's popular with the type of crowd that they like to keep the cards cheap for. It's a very casual-oriented card, I think. Um, you know, Savage Summoning comes to mind. So that would be the only barrier, I think, to this scene, something like 20 or $25, is just they could end up putting this in. If not uh, some Commander product this year, then next year almost certainly, I would assume. It, this could show up as a one-of, I think, in one of the Commander 2021 Strixhaven decks. It could also yeah. show up as a secret layer. Uh, in both cases, probably, probably not going to make a huge difference. Now, if it was in multiple of the Commander decks, you might have it might be a different situation yeah it's the type of thing where i would expect it to hit uh like probably a one of in the commander decks which would would not crush it but it would put some drag on it but then they do it again in another product next year and then another product next year and it kind of slowly racks up those series of printings where none of them are deep enough to like crush the price but just keeps adding drag to an ever-growing pool of supply. If they, not to, if they give, which none of that makes a pick bad. Well, if they give this to us twice a year, it, it will eventually make the pick bad. But the beauty here is that if you don't want to take any of that risk, you can get in and out within six weeks, before we have the list on Strixhaven. True. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think for th- this year is pr- probably safe. Like Strixhaven is the one catch. The Strixhaven Commander deck. So you just have to fade that one product, which you might be able well, to get away with. And Secret Lair. It could easily be in a Secret Lair. Sure. I mean, that's always true. Like, that's true of every card all the time. I don't agree with that either. There, there's Because you can't put... You, they're not going to put mm, Jeweled Lotus in a Secret Lair. Because well, the, the, the price point of the Commander decks works for a heroic intervention reprint as the ten dollar card in the deck but as jason will talk is fond of talking about there's only so many of those they can put in commander decks and typically they're only going to be in the annual decks that are coming out with strixhaven so that's why i say it could easily show up in one of the decks as a one of but i don't think it's going to be in all four decks and then in terms of you know secret layer potential ten dollar cards are great because they tend to want to get 30 to 50 dollars for those so if they give a cough up two ten dollar cards and a twenty dollar card then they're right in the money sweet spot uh yes i would agree that it's not actually every card um but it's it's a lot of cards yeah it's it's true Uh, of any card in the correct price range that is popular in either modern pioneer casual cube or edh which is a lot of cards (laughs) Yeah, they're not they're not gonna print uh you know God, even like one with nothing is not zero percent. Like some rare whose name I can't even remember, some forgettable gate crash rare is not gonna show up in a secret layer. But in terms of like 
cards that we would ever talk about because people like playing them are all like technically on the table. And yeah, like Jeweled Lotus, they're not going to put in there. But yeah. Plus, you know, with the way they've been doing Secret Layers, they they could get splashy with some of that, which, you know, this kind of goes off topic. So far, they've had a pretty good idea of what they wanted to put in those, but there's there's no tell. They might be like, hey, let's see if we can put a $100 card in here and get 80 for it, or, you know, make a set that their current market value is $400 for these five cards and put that out as a $250 Secret Layer. That's true. Because... Cost them. In fact, it almost seems like that is the, the the way that they would go with this because it costs them the same amount of money to, to reprint a $90 magic card as it does a 90 cent magic card. So why wouldn't they try and crank the value on those secret layers as hard as they could? I could easily, I've, I've said the same thing in the past, and I could easily see them this year doing something like a San Diego Comic Con themed secret layer where they still control 100% of the revenue stream surrounding it. But they, you know, work something out with SDCC to borrow the branding or whatever, and mm-hmm. and put it and slap a jeweled lotus in there. That could happen. Okay, so uh, heroic interventions. If you're buying these at six dollars, you are uh, you're working your way towards that library of Alexandria. There you go. What's uh, what's your first selection this week? So poking around, uh, popular commanders this week. I was looking at. Lathril, who is the black-green elf commander from the Kaldheim decks, and uh, he is definitely moving the needle on harvest season, uh, which lets you fetch lands based on the number of tapped creatures you control. So Lathril taps all your guys to damage your opponents, and then you cast harvest season and you go get like 10 basic land cards basically drains your deck of the rest of the basics most likely um harvest seasons in over 7,000 eda track decks so it's decent it's not like amazing but 7k is still pretty potent uh there are only 14 vendors on tcg player right now uh mtg mint card which is one of the one of if not the biggest vendor on tcg has seven foils uh, but still only seven uh and there's only about 15 copies of this card in foil, including MTG Mint cards, below 8 bucks. So, you know, a bunch of people playing Lathril are picking up copies here and there, probably going, well, you know, I'll throw it in Lathril, and who knows what other mechanics and commanders will come down the pipe that make you tap your creatures that this card gets more interesting in. Uh, and like I said, with only about 15 maybe copies below eight bucks, this is going to go from 350-ish to eight or nine in the span of, I would assume, several weeks. I put three to nine months on the spreadsheet here just to kind of be conservative, but realistically, I could see it by the summer being up almost double digits. And if again, if you're buying these at, at three to four dollars, that's going to be a nice turnaround. Um, you know, if you end up dumping two play sets into a buy list at at ten dollars credit, you'll be pretty happy. Can we get them even cheaper in Europe? I I don't tend to check. I assume that just kind of everyone listening who has the out will go look this stuff up, but or you will look it up on Castle and talking about it. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised because it is a very EDH oriented card. I'm already looking at it. One second. The foils are looks to be dirt cheap. Let's see. Yeah, you can get these for under two plus shipping and some 
some of the vendors have them closer to three plus shipping. Eh, you're not going to save much in Europe just because of shipping costs over there. Yeah, I mean, it, it might be one of those things where if you're placing an order for some other cards, you might grab them because the shipping's already covered. Although the shipping in on MKM is so weird, like you can go backwards by adding cards to your order, but worth keeping an eye out when you're browsing your uh, your secret websites there or your, if you venture into your store in the toxic air, keeping an eye out for. So I think, uh, I think these are worth keeping an eye out for. Alrighty. Solid, solid selection. I'm going to take a bit of a left turn here and go ahead and advocate that people pick up some foil borderless pathways, specifically from Cal Time. And the one I'm looking at is the one we just saw top eight that uh, in black, red mid range for the Pioneer Challenge. Blight Step Pathway is looking like it's in a pretty sweet position. There are about half as many copies of Blight Step listed as there are for something like Clearwater Pathway Foil Borderless from Zendikar Rising. Now, how could that be? Zendikar Rising came out in October. Massive set release in the fall. But it's been out for several months. Wouldn't you think that there would be less copies versus the brand new set that just came out and should be heading towards peak supply? Well, here's the thing. This is a pretty good case study for recognizing that Caltime is probably underselling and being underopened versus Zendikar Rising. And we're hearing that story echoed out in the vendor sphere pretty constantly right now. And this seems to underscore it in a big way because same rarity, same kind of card. Arguably, this one has just as good of a play pattern overall, just as likely you're going to need a black-red duel as a blue-black duel. Um, and, I mean, you could even make the argument that blue-black, like, salt-eye colors in EDH are kind of best colors versus, say, black-red decks. And yet, there are less of the Blight Step uh, than there are of the Clearwater. And Clearwater is also the most beautiful art, I think, out of the Zendikar Rising versions, so... If any of them would be drained, you would expect it to be that one. What that says to me is that these are going to drain out a lot faster than people might realize. It's a four of in the, that Pioneer deck. 19% uh, of all EDH rec decks reported since this thing came out are running it. There is a secret layer coming out with all 10 of the pathways that got bumped back to late spring. But here's the thing. The cost on those is going to be minimum $10 a pathway and probably closer to $15 or $20 based on the retail margin that's going to need to be applied. So unless they're doing special something special to boost the appeal of that set, it's not going to be a whole very much of an anchor. And it's possible that it's going to sell very poorly and some of those units are just not going to be in circulation. So I don't want to be super deep on these yet because I want to see how that secret layer situation pans out, but I'm willing to bite off one, two, three play sets and then play a bit of a waiting game and see how quickly the rest of these hollow out. These are fascinating. I will give you that. I'm, you know, as you said, I'm seeing 30 vendors on Blight Step Pathway, which is a card we're talking about, the black red flip land from Kaldheim. And then if I look over at the same, uh, are you talking, 
extended art foils or pack foils? Well, they're borderless. They're not extended art because they, wow. they, they show up in non-CBs. You're, okay, so they're, so... they're showcased technically. So we're talking okay. We're we're talking about the borderless foils specifically, correct? Just correct. To clarify. Yes. Okay. So the borderless foils, like you said, are, are about ten bucks. Thirty of thirty vendors for the Kaldheim one, and the same version uh, or same idea, Clearwater Pathway, also the borderless foil, but out of Zenicar, as you said, looks to be fifty-two vendors. So uh, not quite twice as many vendors available, which is definitely. An interesting data point. Now, I one my first thought is Kaldheim is very new, new enough that possibly not a lot of the Kaldheim product hasn't made it into people's hands and has not gotten listed yet. So it's possible that there it, that is simply one of the issues. Um, just that the Kaldheim cards simply haven't gotten to the players that want them yet, and that that number will increase. However, is it? going to is it such that this number is going to double uh the number of these are going to double in the next couple of weeks it seems like a bit of a stretch and i mean that still puts it the supply on par with clearwater pathway the zendikar one but you're still talking about the brand new release of it rather than the one that was released months ago so really you'd have to see the supply on blight step pathway the call time one like triple in order to get it to the point where you would expect, kind of anticipate it to behave relative to the Zendikar one. And I think it's pretty likely the supply is not going to triple. So this is definitely a, a very interesting catch here and certainly lends credence to the idea that Kaldheim is under-opened. Now, I also see that this is, as you said, nearly 20% of EDH rec decks. I think that's wrong. There's no way these are supposed to be that popular in EDH. Um, I, 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 I have, I have trouble with that. I continue <laughs> to not under to be mystified by why you're mystified. It's both colors, my man. If you're in black and red, it's, there's it's, not that many duels. It's only, it's only both colors. It is, it is. Uh, wait, God, I'm old. And nothing comes to mind easily anymore. It is. Uh, it is a quantum dual land. It is only both colors until you look at it. Sure, true. The, that, that's true. But it's the color. Schrodinger's you, the color, dual land. It's Schrodinger's dual it's land. It's the color. True, but it's the color you need on the turn that you play it, which is what matters. Well, you, except you're, you're opening a hand. You have you have bloodstained mire. You're going to go get your shock. You opened with a swamp, a utility land, and this. You've got necropotence in hand, and you want to cast it. This is going to let you do that. A lot, yeah, a lot of the other I, options will come into play tapped. I, I understand that, but the early turns in, in most EDH games are very quiet, so it's very easy to put lands in the play tapped. And EDH games are not seven turns. They're 20 to 40 to 70 no, turns. there's plenty of EDH games that are over before that, depending on what your power level is at your table. Oh, but, sure. But more, I mean, there's but more EDH games across the spectrum. But more importantly... Go back and look at the pathway stats for Zendikar Rising. You've got Clearwater Pathway, the aforementioned, already at 4,457 decks. And while it's not at 20%, it's still at 13%. And any card that's 10% plus is very, very good looking. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a whole conversation to have here about how those numbers may be inflated at release of a set and then soften as you get further away from that set That's true. and kind of approach their their true uh, uptick. But we, we'll set all that aside for the minute. We got Michael coming up shortly here. So I will say that even it, despite my reservation regarding the popularity and the long-term popularity in EDH, the numbers all seem correct here. So I am also interested in a couple of these, the borderless foils at 10 bucks with the eye towards what they might look like. And if you see good movement on this, you know, no extra supply getting added and the price is starting to move, I could see making uh, another move on them with the with the hope of them getting the 25 or 30 bucks all right so tell me about your next your next selection uh my other one i caught when i was looking through some older sets trying to find something that we might might have uh quietly been sneaking up and i found spell seeker out of battle bond which uh I, ha I had thought we talked about if we did, it must have been last year because I don't see it showing up on our list for the last year's worth of episodes. But Packfoil Spellseekers right now, you can get one for uh, about $45, um, which is, and it's like 47 and the market price is 45. So we're a little above the market price, which is good. It means we're moving upwards. Uh, you've got like a $45 copy, then a $53 copy, two $53 copies, then a $60 copy, um, and there's there's nine of them at 60 and then you've got like 70 and then they're gone so there's only about 15 copies total of this card across eight vendors in foil with a real steep ramp it's just got the one printing it dodged the time spiral remastered reprint where it might have shown up there but it didn't uh, I'm, I say that without actually having verified that that's true I'm pretty confident this is not in in uh, in Time Spell Remastered. If it is, you guys can call me. An not, idiot. not so far. Uh, okay. Again, I think we got all the blue rares. So I, you know, you're not gonna. These aren't gonna be super liquid. You're not gonna see a ton of them move. I wouldn't want ten of these. Uh, but it, of course, at forty five dollars a copy, you're probably not gonna be able to afford them anyways, or even find that many. But I think you could probably buy a, a playset or less of these at forty five to fifty bucks, and probably flip them for somewhere between sixty to ninety this year. So the only thing with this, oh. And it's in 17,000 EDA track decks. Like, it's actually very highly played. Yeah. Well, I mean, this thing goes and gets... Uh... It's it's Trinket Mage, yeah, sort of. It... It's a 3-mana 1-1 one, one that allows you to tutor for an instant or sorcery that costs 2 or less. Well, and most importantly, in EDH, it goes gets Cyclonic Rift, it goes gets Demonic Tutor, etc., etc. Yeah. Going to get Cyclonic Rift is pretty nasty. So, here's the thing. It, it is a Judge promo that was a 2020 Judge promo. And according to the judges in our Discord, there's a January to April conference packet for this year that will include two Judge Academy 2020 promos. And the image that was included was the one that had Demonic Tutor, Spellseeker, Gamble, and Enlightened Tutor. Mm. So that could create some drag. But keep in, yeah. keep in mind that the amount of Judge promos that are recirculating under current circumstances is probably lower than normal. And even if that is, you know, a couple hundred copies that are going to float around to the market and get sold on Facebook and eBay and whatever, 
It's not a huge amount, and the lowest price on those currently on TCG Player is about sixty-five bucks. Yeah. Whereas you can still get them for under fifty over on Card Market. So there's a couple yeah, couple well, different ways to skin this cat. I did. I, I was going to say I checked this on on Magic Card Market actually just out of curiosity, uh, and it is on like you said. It's there's like two copies. One copy below fifty on Magic Card Market, and it catches right back up pretty fast. So you're, there's not even like there's a wealth of these overseas. Um, the Judge promo is a good point though, and I I didn't have the information that this was g- likely to see some additional release this spring. So that will definitely put some additional drag on this. I don't think it's going to crush it, but it puts the timeline a little longer. For sure. Well, maybe maybe the later side of this year. I, I don't think it's going to crush it. And more to the point, this is still the original printing. So right. I, I expect this to be a hundred dollar plus foil in the not too distant future, just because it's the original printing of a very popular card. Yeah, uh, yeah. But that sounded really good right up until the judge promo. <laughs> uh, well, let's just take a look. Like, how, how many copies of the non judge promo? I mean, just a battle bond foil are even left. You got you got uh, eight 15. eight listings. I mean, this is this is headed for a hundred. So eight listings with fifteen total, like fifteen ish copies. I mean, let's put it this way. I'm gonna go ahead and snap off two copies in Europe for about ninety euro. That seems reasonable. Yeah, I don't hate there. I don't hate that at all. Better than you're paying in, uh, over here. All right, let's finish up these last two picks. So my last one is Priest of Forgotten of the Forgotten God. I want to say Priest of Forgotten Gods, but I think it's Priest of the Forgotten God. Uh, this is a card out of Ravnica Allegiance. It is was released before the increased foil drop rate. There were no collector boosters at the time. There are no alternate versions of this other than the promo pack foils and uh, pre-release foils. So, Foil Priest of the Forgotten Gods shows up in 11,000 EDH rec decks, 5% of all black decks. It's a 4 of in Coco Aristocrats uh, in Pioneer, and I could easily see these going 5 to 15. Okay. I mean, that's a lot of popularity on EDH rec. Uh, a significant percent, 5% is, is very solid. Um, and this is not, not even like that new i mean it's on the newer side but it's not like it was last week or anything um boy why is this not priest priest of forgotten gods there we go that's what this is the one that had the uh uh oh god the phyrexian face in it and people are like, oh, maybe the Phyrexians are going to show up in Ravnica next time because this chick is praying to them. Uh, but regardless, a cool card that seems very popular with a very good price point. So I am behind it. Looks like these have already, for the most part, been targeted. Uh, no, that's not true. I was looking, I guess, at pre-release promos in over in Europe. But if you look at the regular foils, you can still get them over there in and around about the same price. Uh, there's just not very deep supply. Demand is high. It's kind of an under-the-radar pick. But there's only 18 results left on TCG Player. So this one's going to get there. 
Yeah, with 11,000 decks, people are buying this card. Yep. All right, and then our our Pro Trader selection of the week is Bedevil Foils out of same set, Ravnica Allegiance. Um, there were several good selections this week that we could have chosen, but this one had a, has a nice dovetailing with the arguments for Priest of Forgotten Gods. Bedevil's in 15,000 EDH decks. 14% of all black and red decks run it. You can also get foils around $5, and it won't be too long till that one's $15. Both rares, I, all the I, same set. I like this. This was uh, when James Point brought this listener pick to me. I was like, that is a very good card that I would have picked myself if I had found it. Uh, I rarely give unconditional approvals of our listener picks, but this is one of them. And uh, the listener is Kuji, K-U-U-J-I. So congrats to Kuji for winning the $25 gift certificate to Cool Stuff, Inc. And I guess with that, we will head off to find Michael Caffrey. We're moving on to segment four now, where we are joined by Michael Caffrey, who is going to probably correct my pronunciation owner of tales of adventure uh mike it is great to have you on the cast uh, james and i have both followed you for a long time and with uh with interest in in the things you have to say on social media and twitter about magic finance so it's great to finally get get you in the the chair here to have a conversation it's great to be here i appreciate you having me on uh, Michael, you're probably best known on Twitter as uh, appearing to be a fairly seasoned operator in the Magic and Pokemon spaces. I think your your Tales of Adventure store is located in Pennsylvania, yes? Correct. Mm-hmm. But you also have a, a fairly significant online presence uh, via toamagic.com, is that correct? Correct. Right. And uh, how many years have you been operating in this space? So last September was seven years in business overall, and I was working in the space for about three years before that. Uh, I started when I was uh, like 19 or 20 in college, um, up until now, more or less. You've only been doing Tales for seven years? Yes. Uh, What was your inaugural GP? Uh, GP Baltimore, which was the Nikos uh, Card Titan Grand Prix, um, which was 2015, maybe 20. No, I'm sorry. It was the, it was the 2015 season, but it was like December, 2014. I, okay. So I don't think I've been to a Baltimore GP or if I have, I don't remember, but I, I, I must've been at one of your very first GPs then. Because I was definitely going the GPs pretty regularly, and you're in Pennsylvania. I'm right up in Buffalo. Where in Pennsylvania are you located? Uh, we are 20 minutes south of Allentown, uh, like the Village Old Song, or an hour northwest of Philadelphia. Okay, gotcha. Okay, so you're a little on the eastern side of the state, right? Wait, so there, you're you've got like nothing north across the border, right? Isn't that area of Pennsylvania like you cross north into New York, and there's just like it's like the Finger Lakes or something, or like something like that there's nothing over there if memory serves me yeah uh as as james carville put it uh, pennsylvania is philadelphia and pittsburgh with alabama in the middle and <laughs> yeah yeah the, the more you go in that direction the, the more rural it gets um which it, it's a nice area i like i like being here and being an hour away from a major airport or an hour and a half away from new york city is is a good spot to live so tell tell us a little bit about what it was like do you remember you know 
the experience of joining the GP circuit as a vendor? Had you worked for a different vendor prior to opening under your own flag? So I worked for somebody else that was mostly in the comic space, so not really the magic space at all. Um, Charles from MTG Deals was a uh, an influence in seeing what was possible. Um, not that everything he did was correct or or profitable or scalable for everyone else, but I never worked for anyone else in the industry in in a big sense. So at that at that first event, um, I had. Jim Higginbottom uh, and Rob Kusick, who both worked for The Only Game in Town, which had a 25-year history in, in Magic. Uh, so they had some of the professional experience, even though they, I don't think, had vended a Grand Prix or now that they've personally done it. But Jim had worked as a buyer for a number of other uh, smaller smaller companies at, at various points in the in the years leading up to that. Gotcha. So did, did, did you find that time on floor resulted in immediate uh, pain points and learning opportunities? Oh, yeah. I, I screwed up infinite things and, <laughs> and probably lost a lot of money that looking back could have been could have been avoided. Well, that's that, that I'm sure is a story of everyone who starts their own business. Oh, absolutely. Um, so I've and I've tried to use some of these things to influence the industry, but also uh, how how magic fests are being presented to the public. Um, we we've done a lot with branding when shows were happening. So we have new tablecloths, we have overhead banners, uh, we have we have shirts now. And you know, for for years, this was something that most vendors kind of skipped over, didn't go all out in making the booth look amazing. Uh, especially compared to how other industries, how trade shows operate and whatnot, because there, there's a whole industry around presenting your booth very nicely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're selling single cards that are more expensive than all of this, right? For the price of one unlimited Lotus, even even a, a year ago, right? A, an $8,000 Lotus, you could take that $8,000 and make your entire booth look incredible instead of, you know, having four cases uh, on a on a black tablecloth that covers two thirds of the table. Yeah, yeah. the the uh, the the local vendor special. Uh, yeah, let's go. Let's go with that. <laughs> uh, I I don't recall seeing a. I, I'm having trouble placing in my memory the Tales of Adventure booth, uh, but it's been a while since I've really frequented GP, so that's probably why. Uh, but I know there was kind of an explosion in that uh, branding across GP vendors, uh, probably what, like two, three-ish years ago? I think it was um, that one that's associated with Haruya started showing up and doing a lot of work with it, and they had like a bunch of video uh, TV screens hooked up. They were... They're really pushing the envelope on it. Yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go into uh, which U.S. store is associated with which Japanese store because I don't think that's strictly all public information, and um, um, you know it's not it's not prudent to get into. But uh, Wizard Tower, who was a Canadian vendor, uh, had Wizard gone Tower. really all out with uh, a lot of overhead rigging and. They had like four or five television monitors all over the place with with bu- both buy prices and sell prices. So that was that was kind of the first vendor I saw that went 
that went really far uh, outside of like you know, Star City, where where they also have a professional team that handles that stuff. I, I think I think Wizard Tower is the one I was thinking of. Now that you say that, I, it immediately comes to mind. But uh, I do remember having sold at the Tales of Adventure booth a couple times at a couple of GPs for sure. You guys were always. Uh, paying very well on a lot of EDH and casual cards. And I would make a point of spinning by the booth because you guys were were taking stuff that some of the other vendors weren't interested in because they were more focused on competitive st- cards. Yeah, we do We do the majority of our business on Amazon, or, or did, I guess. Um, TCG Player has gone up a little bit in terms of, in terms of volume because of uh, the reserveless stuff. Um, just the people who are spending a lot of money on that are primarily shopping on TCG player. Mm -hmm. So to just go back to the pre COVID scenario from that first GP forward, how many events total do you think you did? Uh, I should put this all together somewhere and actually get a, get a number. Uh, It's probably close to a hundred. And I've been at all of them, except for, I believe three. Uh, one of those was GP Atlanta cross-booked against Eternal Weekend. Gotcha. So you would basically be, if there was a GP anywhere in America or North America, you would, you'd be there? Uh, anywhere in the United States. Sure. Okay. Did you, did you come up for any of the Canadian GPs? Um, I've, I've done some, some travel to Canada, but it's not, uh, it's not something I, I would do for business. Gotcha. Right. So. Given that you had been such a seasoned operator on the GP circuit, you know, for years leading up to the descending of the COVID veil across the hobby, now that we're a year into the COVID scenario and, you know, vaccinations are starting to make their way out into the population, what do you think things are going to look like when big magic events rejoin and what do you think might be different? So one of the ways I'm looking at, at the, the math and the approach of, of when we're going to see big events again is starting from the perspective of avoiding uh, a big news story about the event, avoiding uh, serious community spread. So right now we have like 50,000 uh, active cases per day. If you assume everybody's contagious for three days, then about one of every 2,000 people are positive. So that means that if you have a 2,000-person Grand Prix right now, which obviously we're not going to have because we know that's that's not safe, there's like roughly a 60 or 65% chance that there is a COVID-positive attendee at that event. I, again, disregarding travel and everything else, but just like if you, t- if you take that many Magic players. So I think we're going to need to see cases go down dramatically where I was looking at this from the LGS perspective is that right now, if you have a 20 person event every day, there's a 1% chance that there will be an attendee who is both positive and contagious. So if you do this every day, you're rolling a D 100, 350 times and you hit a hundred and suddenly your store is responsible for, for getting somebody sick. (laughs) I, this is not an unreasonable way to parse all of this, but it's funny because when you say a 2,000 person GP only has a 60% chance of having a um, COVID positive and contagious individual, that's actually much lower than I would have anticipated. Yeah, and again, I'm 
not promising any of the math is strictly correct. And that's sure. that's uh, one or more because of the way uh, you know independent trials work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. I mean, you know, if we're talking about GPs, uh, you know, if I'm if I'm Wizards, I I want that number to be low single digits, one percent. Right, right. So 2%. like, we we probably need a case count under a thousand cases per day, uh, with with widespread uh, vaccination availability and and everything else. And even then, like booking a plane flight and booking a hotel room, like these things take time. So even if we know we're heading in that direction, somebody's still going to be putting the money out two months out for a flight. And then, you know, they find out, oh, we have, we have spiking cases where 5,000, what do we do? And we're the United States of America, so we're probably not going to do anything. But, you know, there's definitely some questions about, can I get a refund because of, of, of quarantine requirements, because of, of any number of new issues that are popping up. Uh, but, but bottom line, um, I would expect July, August, September, October, somewhere in that range to see something come back. Um, the biggest like comparable event we can probably see is like the world series of poker in, in July, how that gets handled. Um, Las Vegas in general is, uh, has, is, has been very permissive for, uh, COVID restrictions, so I would expect uh, if they feel that that's safe, we get the data from that, and then we're going to miss decisions down the line. I, I have to imagine that the Vegas culture is going to be way more eager to put these events into play um, than Magic is. Uh, I mean, you're talking about people who have a, a lot more money, probably a bigger a community of like personal responsibility type guys uh the the industry and the city is there's so much money built on that i guess i i don't so i'm not saying you're wrong but like i can see vegas being like okay it's safe enough to hold the world series of poker now and wizards being like no we are still 10 times too many cases before we can talk about it right and that's kind of my my criteria is you start to see what has to happen for us to consider this yeah. Uh, there's talk of, of like a Hamilton Broadway show uh, happening in the next couple months at 25% oh. attendance. And again, you, you see you see these small steps to normality where we eventually can make a, a decision of, oh, this is this is safe. It it would be Hamilton. It absolutely would be Hamilton. My God. Uh, but yeah, for, in terms of uh, you know casinos in general, like I'm I'm checking what a uh, how many games are going on right now? And like, you know, there's plexiglass everywhere. But if you want to, if you want to go play poker and you're in an area with uh, actual table games, like there are, there are a lot of tables in in a lot of these areas. Uh, a lot of the smaller casinos that like would normally only have two tables just aren't running anything. But you know, a big a big uh, casino that has thirty tables has like twenty full right now. Mm, sure. So, so I, when you when you picture a future where we get back to GPs, let's say that that's October 2021 for the first major event, people are probably going to be required to wear masks. There may or may not be caveats about cancellation. There's certainly business risk involved, as you referenced. There's all sorts of liability issues in running an event like that. So do you expect to see 
CFB events at the forefront of that, or do you think somebody else is going to be first to the table to try a, a big event? Like, do you expect it to be a regional operator that just tries an unofficial tournament? So I think the nature of magic events is that the the mental, like the brain staff, the people who are smart enough to pull the stuff off, uh, is just so homogenized in the industry to working for CFB, working for Star City, that they're going to be uh, the people who are going to be running something in general. Uh, I would I would expect to see a couple hundred person event happen somewhere like Texas uh, or Florida because both those areas do have a moderately large number of Magic players and uh, are are fairly loose on, on restrictions and approaches here. But in terms of what's the first event that's going to break a thousand, you know, I, that's definitely going to be a, a CFB event. Got it. Do Do you think we will have an honest to God GP this year? Uh. I'm gonna I'm gonna rephrase the question, and that I don't think we're gonna have a GP slash Magic Fest, but I would expect to see a Command Fest type event happening. Um, sorry, Command Fest, not uh, not Magic Fest, just because of the nature of interactions, the uh, the scalability of, of something like that. You know, if you have uh, if you're running Commander events, you can rent you know twenty. Uh, 2,000 square foot rooms in a row and kind of space people out and be able to do you know, possibly contact tracing or small pods where it might be, oh, you, yeah, there, we have all these events going on, but, but once you go into a room, you can only play in that room and you, you get to mitigate a little bit more of the risk uh, if we're in an uncertain time in terms of recovery. Gotcha. That seems sensible. And also, like, we don't know what this first event's going to look like. You know, this first event could be uh, could be 500 people because nobody wants to take risks. It may be 10,000 people because everybody is really excited to get on a plane and, and play Magic. I, I have a feeling as much as I wish it wasn't true that that's probably closer to the case than not. I, I agree. And but delving into the second half of the question, what is, it, what is this event going to look like? There is... A lot of hype from the from the vendor community of oh this is this event's going to be insane. How much money do I need to bring? Uh, it doesn't matter. It's not going to be enough. And there's so much pent up demand on the on the sell side in particular. And I'm not I'm not sure I buy into that. I'm not sure I believe it. And honestly, I could see the first event selling too many vendor tables and being kind of uh, miserable overall, especially for anybody who's on the smaller side. Where there's going to be better opportunities if you wait, you know, two or three months to really spend money well. You, is you that because be you think that you one. think players will stay away until they feel safer? Uh, I think the ratio is not going to be favorable to vendors, while it will be favorable to players. Um, you, know, you have to remember there's an entire country of Japan that is way ahead of the U.S. in all of this that will actively be having events and probably needs you know, 10,000 copies of uh, whatever the best mythic and standard is. Sure. Right. So you know, you're going to see U.S. stores paying 50 cents under whatever Japan's paying on them. So this is, this is an angle of MTG Finance that is fairly specific to the vendor side of things and really only a small group of you overall um, globally that have the connections in Japan that, that conduct the majority of the arbitrage. And lots of people that are 10 
you know, that dabble in the MTG finance scene, speculators, you know, people that are in our pro trader community and so forth, hear about this. They might have some interactions with some of you on this. They might be, you know, dumping cards to James Hughes, uh, JapaneseBuyList.com or what have you. Um, they're certainly tracking buy list prices as posted on a Harayuya. But can you speak, you know, to whatever degree you're comfortable about the existence of that? arbitrage flow and what tends to move from North America or Europe to Japan and vice versa. And, 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 and I guess how that helps to set prices in the North American market. So the like 10,000 foot view of, of Japanese U S arbitrage and, and magic finance is first off, the first set that was printed in Japanese was Mirage. And that's really important to keep in mind because it means that Revised was never printed over there, Legends was never printed over there, which means, in general, anything from those types of sets uh, will command a premium because there are not copies readily in, on the market already for those cards, and like new collections aren't being found that have stacks of Revised Duels like would happen in the United States. Gotcha. So the first class of cards that are good in Japan are you know, Dual Lands from Revised, uh, Force of Will from Alliances, Helm of Obedience was good for a very long time in Japan. And there's there's some other reasons why some of these individual cards are good. Uh, now, when we say Mirage was the first set, well, Magic was always very popular in Japan when it started. That means Tempest Block, Urza's Block, and to a large degree, Mercadian Mask's Block are the most overrepresented sets for Japanese cards, uh, or or product in Japan in general, not even uh, not even Japanese language in particular. So any any rare from that era, even any common uncommon from that era, uh, although commons less so, tends to be uh, much more available in Japan. And you'll get vendors coming over from Japan saying, "I have uh, you know two hundred copies of." Uh, might sliver from Tempest, you know, can you can you pay me 50 cents on them or whatever? Because that's just how things are. Uh, now, Japan, as a uh, culture, doesn't doesn't have a lot of space to keep things. So, bulk common uncommon is less of a thing over there. A lot of that just got, got junked at various points in time. But amongst rares, that's generally what you see for what's coming to the U.S. from that era. Um, Obviously, the Japanese market is more competitive, but there's. And I don't want to. I don't want to stereotype any of this. Um, obviously, every culture has has norms about how people uh, uh, how people choose to interact with a game and what they find appealing about a game. But in Japan, a lot of times people want to build the best deck, and there's a lot of of pride of like. I you know this is this is the optimal version. I I need this exact optimal seventy five, and there's a little bit less uh, creativity overall in, in some ways in terms of in terms of card choices or, or deck selection. So if if Jund is like a really good deck in modern, there's a ton of demand of everybody wanting to play Jund, and you have a lot of flavor of the week type stuff happening in standard as well. Um, there's been cases where a vendor from Japan has come over here bought like 500 copies of a, of a standard rare mythic at four dollars and is selling them back in japan for for three dollars because 
well, they like misjudge the market and misjudge which way these winds are going. You just have to get rid of the cards, and that's that's also just a fact of life in Japan. Jeez. Gotcha. So let's say we're talking about vendor X, not necessarily you, but an, a seasoned operator that is uh, known to be uh, exporting cards from the North American market, say, buying up collections of revised duels and, and pieces of power and what have you, and offloading them to contacts in Japan. Do they tend to turn around and take that cash flow that they generate through that action and just go back through the same motions back in North America? Or is there counter flow where they're, for instance, picking up cheap EDH cards in Tokyo and bringing them back to North America? So I, I talked a little bit about that that uh, Tempest Saga masks type era where those cards generally do uh, much better in the United States. So that d- stuff does come over here. Part of the problem of Japanese uh, Japanese casual cards, because Obviously, the stigma is that that stuff's all very, very affordable in Japan. A lot of it is, not all of it. But a lot of these products are printed in such a way that nobody in Japan has a reason to really open them. So if you take something like uh, Containment Priest from Chimera 2014 before all the reprints, that card was incredibly popular in Japan, but nobody was buying the deck because they, like, only wanted Containment Priest. So, like, uh, if you have, um, I'm trying to think of any of the other cards in that deck that that are that are worse, um, you know, like that that Nihiri, you know, you're not going to see somebody from Japan coming over with 40 copies of Nihiri from the the Forged and Steel deck. Instead, what you see is they might have you know, two or three copies because there just isn't actually supply on a lot of the casual type cards on the Japanese market. That said, when you see something cross over that isn't a standard legal product that was widely opened and widely opened in, in English or a master's card in particular, uh, something like, uh, you know, Elish Norn from, from Iconic Masters. Uh, if that, if that's new, you know, you might see somebody have, have 50 copies or hundred copies of a card like that coming over because nobody's playing that competitively and every copy that gets open gets sold to a vendor and quickly comes back into the U S. Gotcha. Makes sense. And that's especially true if the, if the product is uh, competitive and not printed in Japanese. So Jumpstart is like a phenomenal example if supply existed, um, where you would have, you know, Allosaurus Shepherd was $150 in Japan when it was like $100 here. And they Yeesh. they just paid the $100 here and didn't care. Literal, like, go on TCG player, hit, hit buy this card, buy this card. But a card... That was in in Jumpstart, like uh, like Craterhoof Behemoth, or even though they're like playing the same deck. Um, you know, every copy of Craterhoof Behemoth that got opened in Japan just came to the United States, right? And so I've heard whispers recently that that Commander might be showing signs of life in Japan. Have you? Do you have any experience or, or insight as to that, or do you still think it's going to stay stay a very much a fringe format in that in that scene? Uh I think this speaks to how a a culture overall looks at uh, looks at winning, losing, and having fun in terms of in terms of playing Magic uh, and anything else they do. But I think culturally, there's more more winning and less uh, less 
I'm playing my, you know, Isamaru deck and I'm going to put 12 equipments on it and I'm going to attack you seven times to win um, because it's not the best thing you could be doing. So we might see increased demand for the staples. Uh, I know for a long time, this was a couple years ago, uh, Jeweled Amulet was a card that people, some people in Japan, not, not every store in Japan, but some people in Japan sold very well. Now Jeweled Amulet is like a, a one mana artifact with tap, put a charge counter on it, and then tap, remove a charge counter, add one mana of any color to your mana pool. So why is this card good? Well, it let you cast Liliana of the Veil on turn two, and like that was just the <laughs> best thing you could do. <laughs> Zero casting cost, actually. What, one... Is, it, is it one tap? Yeah, one tap. Um, but yeah, that's that's pretty funny. The Now, obviously there... there does regardless of what's happening with EDH, there certainly seems to be a increase in the collectability focus, or more to the point, Wizards is leaning into the cultural um, strength of the collector mentality in Japan that arguably could be deemed to be stronger than almost anywhere else in the world. Um, and I... When I'm referring to that, I'm thinking of things like the War of the Spark boxes in Japan, having the surprise anime planeswalkers, the fact that Amano Lilianas are now arguably worth north of $5,000 US in Japan, whereas a lot of North Americans just kind of shake their head and don't really get it. Um, and then, of course, we have the recent announcement about the Strixhaven collector booster boxes uh, and some of the other Strixhaven uh, product uh, line having Japanese-themed art and uh, kanji for key cards that will that are clearly targeted at the Japanese collector market. Did- yeah, I'm not quite sure why they're leaning into that as as hard as they are. Um, I think everything stems from a a goal from the top of how can we make magic more affordable first off uh, standard magic in particular um, if you go back to like the concept of Tarkir format when standard decks were $500 because they had 12 fetches in them like that's not a, a healthy thing for the game um, I don't know what a standard deck costs now but I would expect a lot of them to be in the $150 to $200 range if anyone was trying to build papered magic decks so I think that's kind of goal one for for Watsi. And then uh, goal two, and this is kind of a, a weird way to think about it, but is to give them as many reprint vectors for individual cards as possible. Uh, we see the pace of reprints is, is growing very fast, but at the same time, the amount of new cards coming out is also growing really fast. Yeah. You know, you went from having, you know, something like 10,000 cards printed in the first 15 years, 10,000 distinct cards, and now we're at you know, 35,000 or something. I Don't quote me on any of these numbers, but uh, I feel like that's about where it is, where percentage-wise, if Watsi says we want to reprint 10% of uh, cards that are a dollar or more on a buy list, and obviously they can't say that they look at that, but we know they look at that. Obviously. If they're choosing to reprint 10% of these cards, that number keeps growing very quickly. So I think that's what se- what mystery is, what set boosters are, what uh, this product is. 
the, where the they're trying to take a new spin on this. Right. And so let's go back to your earlier point, um, because it wasn't specific to Japan per se, but it is certainly pertinent to the overall analysis of MTG Finance heading into the rest of this year. We are in the, you know, we've been saying on cast for a while that we are now in the premium era of magic, you know, that is that is demarked by a couple of things. The introduction of collector booster boxes and other premium products in uh, at a price tier that is above uh, a regular booster box. The... Um, the degradation of the value of regular pack foils to the, the offering of an increased drop rate on those while simultaneously offering even sexier versions through the premium products. And, and the result of that being, you know, as well as with box toppers like in Zendika Rising and so forth, that you have the EV ending ended up getting anchored to the top end premium cards available in these product formulations resulting in the cheaper standard that you alluded to right that's definitely where where watsi's going and it i mean it, it makes sense it's it's a reasonable choice from them um, i think there's a lot of subtext that is kind of being missed here though um, about Four years ago, Watsi ended the direct sales program where they would sell stores like six cases of product a week or whatever. Uh, but the big thing that did was remove the price anchoring on the wholesale side, which allowed them to increase or decrease uh, margin or perceived margin because Magic lost the MSRP. It's not three ninety nine a pack anymore, and you have. Uh, uh, distributors raising box prices over time. So what we see is kind of a squeeze there. But at some point, the $3.99 booster pack needs to go away. Like that, that price point is not sustainable for the product. If you if you go back and look at when that price was last changed, it was like when the minimum wage changed, like last time Time Spiral was a set. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Packs went from, packs went from uh, $3.29 to $3.99, I believe. So a lot of this is kind of a backdoor way of how can we start increasing prices on the supply side, on the on the wholesale side without without hurting stores and you get a lot of stickiness of that $100 price point obviously collector boosters are are way above that but set boosters are by design how how can we make it look like this is supposed to be a $100 booster box even though that's like a, a 15 to 25% margin for a typical store at that point, that's not really a sustainable margin for a store. But instead, you have, uh, you know, instead you have Watsi kind of making the squeeze. And I wouldn't be surprised if we like keep seeing some iterations on the, on this formula, and really just get away with get away from draft boosters entirely, because you know the because that price just needs to change. Right, <laughs> and so down. and so what we're talking about here is how in the last couple of sets, Wizards has refocused on promoting the sale of tons of set boosters the 30 pack booster boxes that include the list um with a, a kind of a strange scattered reprint uh, strategy embedded in in a box that is not easily draftable and you know, word we've had from our vendor partners is that there's way more of those, for instance, with Cal time that was were in circulation than with draft booster boxes because they want to get to an elevated price point. They don't want booster boxes to be 
hundred dollars retail. They want them to be one twenty or one thirty or whatever. Well, they want them to be a hundred dollars retail because that's just the mental the mental barrier of of you know, ninety nine dollars versus versus one hundred and ten or whatever that that sizing is perceived to be more affordable and plays well compared to where where Pokemon is and and whatnot. But the yeah the the challenge is really. Um, how can they do that? How can they curtail supply on, on, on the draft side? Um, but, you know, set, set boosters do give Watsi a lot of agility where they can print cards that tie in very well. And I'm, I'm probably giving Watsi too much credit on this, and, you know, that's that's fine either way. But I would assume that the lead time for set boosters might be three to six months for w- what cards actually go in them. So if you see a card that, that spikes dramatically that's not reserve list, like, oh, Razaketh from Hour of Devastation is $25 now, they can just say, oh, we're going to print Razaketh in, in set, and now our product is more available to the average customer. Whereas before, you know, if you have to reprint Razaketh into a commander deck, into uh, a, a sealed product of any sort, really, they have to play test it, it takes a lot of time, does it fit thematically, is there a better spot for it? But here they can just put it there and then get some supply out and print it again in six months and they don't care. Right, because at a certain point, the only place that you would ever see those kind of reprints show up was when they introduced the master set and sets in 2013. Prior to that, it had to be a, it had they had to reprint it into standard. You know, 2013 is where we get the first master set and the first commander decks, and before second that, second commander decks. Uh, second? 2011 was first. Oh, 2011. Okay. Yep. So early early 2010s, we're we're getting these two new products that have now been greatly expanded upon. And prior to that, you had to figure out how to make the card work in standard to justify the reprint now it could have been you know could show up as a judge promo or whatever even back then but their opportunities were significantly more limited so now they can say yeah as you said Razaketh we're going to throw that out there and so far the list hasn't hasn't had a tremendous impact on overall availability of the cards included but it's only a single prong of a multi-prong strategy that it also includes things like secret layer now, how, how do you view a, you know, a, a situation like the Secret Layer program where you see them capturing, recapturing the profit margins from the secondary market that would have traditionally been available to you as a vendor? And you know, do, you, do you see that as a harbinger of you know, trouble for you as a magic vendor? Or do you think it's a, just a, you know, something that you can work around? So I, I'll ask James this. Uh, what what does he think print runs look like on, on any of these secret layer products? I think the, the best estimates we ever got on that was somebody that run, ran the numbers early on when they were using, uh, when the e-commerce they were using could be queried. And I think it was on the Theros, uh, the set that had the Theros gods reprinted stargazing, I believe right. it was. And Congratulations I, for the sale. By yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry about that. That tends to go, as I'm sure you're aware, same on your end is going off like clockwork these days. Um, pretty sure that somebody figured out it was twenty or thirty thousand units on on that set. And we we had always said that we thought masterpieces globally were somewhere around twenty thousand units. So it didn't surprise me that secret layers could be anywhere from say ten to forty thousand units. So I think a lot of that goes back to uh, how big Watsi's perceiving the market to be and really how you know, the stuff isn't particularly 
uh, affordable from a from a, a like a three tier distribution perspective. Uh, so in, in a three tier oh, yeah. distribution perspective, right? You have uh, manufacturers who make something, distributors who buy it to resell, and then and then you know stores who who sell it to the end consumer. And you know that twenty thousand number. I mean, it's it's high for a board game, sure, um, or not high for a board game, but compared to what some small print board games do, it's it's a respectable number. The the problem is, you know, printing printing these cards, printing that that type of product at the price point they're going for, that forty dollar price point, isn't really something that scales into that model at all. Um, you know, if they if they think if they think a customer will pay forty dollars, and let's be honest, the price point that Watsi has chosen for these by and large probably reflects what the market can bear. Uh, I don't think a $40 one would sell anywhere near as well at 50. Uh, correct me if I'm, if, you know, you think I'm wrong on that though. Well, we just, it's interesting because you missed the earlier portion of the secret layer uh, conversation earlier in the cast where we were talking about whether or not jeweled Lotus could show up in a secret layer, like whether they would do a $249 price point at some point on a secret layer, maybe tie it to San Diego Comic-Con having a non-existent promo release this summer, like a, a, a purely virtual Comic-Con or some other, you know, excuse to, to test those waters. Because if, if we look back to Throne of Eldraine, which was also the, the first uh, set of collector boosters, the month after, we also got that random product whose name I can't recall that was priced at three ninety nine, I believe. Um, yeah, something offensive. It had like a part of a uncut sheet. <laughs> yeah, it had like a couple yeah. of cards, and then there was like a, a small poster of Garrick or something, and it was kind of roundly rejected for not being, not that it wasn't cool, but that it wasn't, it didn't have, didn't justify the price in terms of what was included. And it felt like a misfire to me, but I, I also felt like it. the issue wasn't that they can't sell at that price point. It's just that they're going to have to sweeten the deal for the whales. That, that product formulation always felt kind of off in terms of what you were getting for what you were paying, just because it seemed to miss the mark. I, you know, when we were talking about it earlier before Mike joined us, I had in my head like, what if it was uh, like a secret layer that is the Eldrazi cycle? Like you get the original three Eldrazi plus the new three Eldrazi, uh, all of whose price points are pretty significant. And maybe the retail price on those, the market price for those six cards might be, you know, $350 or something like that. Uh, then they could price the, the secret layer at 200 and players are getting a sweet deal. Um, but when Wizards gets to sell six cards direct to consumer for $250. And they're all done by Seb McKinnon or whatever. The, yeah, whomever. To, to justify the the presence so i mean i'm i'm pretty curious to where as to when where how they will try attempt those price points again but just because they they can sell that product doesn't mean they're going to sell the same number of units i don't think that they can sell fifty thousand units at 500 with the eldrazi because as you said i think that the secret layer price point is deeply rooted in retail pricing strategy and that the 40 to 50 dollar price point it represents a psychological barrier for the nature of the product formulation. We're going to give you a, a handful of cards and we want, they're going to be special art. You can only get them through this program, but we want you to 
cough up money to us directly. But I'm I'm curious to the as to the part of my earlier question that you didn't answer, Michael. The do you does it concern you that Wizards is essentially in the singles game now, or do you think that it's a net positive overall? Uh, this goes back to our conversation on set booster on reprint agility and whatnot. Sure. Like there are so many magic cards out there that Watsy couldn't possibly. And here's where somebody finds this in five years and I get in a bunch of trouble. <laughs> Watsy couldn't possibly print enough secret layers that the total number of different cards that get reprinted matter in any real way. Right. If we see a hundred cards reprinted through secret layer across a year, which is, I think kind of close to what we have now, or even 200, when Watsi is taking well over a thousand uh, on buy list cards and reprinting them every year through through the various forms, like they just could not actually move the needle in a way uh, in terms of number of cards for it to matter. And they're also conserving the reprint equity by shooting for price points that are generally uh, equitable and sustainable. Right. You know the like the bitter blossom one from the first wave is probably one of the more borderline examples where they were charging thirty dollars for that and bitter blossom was like thirty five dollars at the time, or or something close to that. And you know you, if if Watsi decides that they want to pack value into these because of the cards included, I think that's a problem in terms of their approach on the secondary market. But they're not saying, hey, you need a uh, a bitter blossom for your fairies deck buy it from us what they're what they're saying is oh do you want a cool better blossom for your deck well we're going to sell you this one at a premium price that's above and beyond what a comparable bitter blossom is on the market today so i don't really have a problem with it uh, it's it's probably healthy for the game that hasbro continues to make money off the brand um, basically if you if you told me that uh, hasbro needs to make an extra 20 million dollars off magic next year out of all the ways in the world to accomplish that is the goal, Secret Lair is probably the most innocuous from the vendor perspective. What would be really bad is, you know, Double Masters came out like last last June. If they just said, we're going to do a full reprint of Double Masters and how, how many boxes do you want? And we'll print, we'll, we'll print this to order, right? Because that's what Games Workshop did with the Indominus box at the big summer release where they knew they didn't print enough. They did a big run that was print to order. People want went high on it, but those are plastic miniatures, not collectible cards. So like the supply side kind of worked itself out. Whereas print to order double masters would probably be a disaster for the entire industry. Sure. Hmm. Because you're because you're printing things into the ground across a wide swath of cards that were holding value. So to be specific, it would be like if Secret Layer was four of the special Bitter Blossom and they were priced at fourteen ninety nine a set. So all of a sudden, you've got inventory in the case that was $40 five minutes ago, and now it's arguably $5. Right, and obviously, like when they when they reprint a card to Master Sets, it hurts a little bit because we lose money on it, but the card gets more eyes on it. Um, the card probably has increased liquidity at the lower price. There's usually a time period where we can start cost averaging down by selling some of the copies we have at close to what we paid, buying more, what we perceive the new price to be. It's kind of equitable, and there, there's some give and take, and you know we we understand how the games play. This is a this is a, a fair market for everybody. Um, but the we're reprinting Bitter Blossom, and it's it's four dollars here you go. That's that's a real trouble zone. 
Do you bother? Do you bother buying secret layers for the store? Um, I don't. Uh, I I did historically. Uh, it's something I should probably be doing more. Uh, Watsi in general has not had good international logistics for this stuff, so these cards have generally exported fairly well. But that's not really where I want to be spending money. Uh, this year's the first year where I've actively had a surplus of money to be able to to do things like this. You know, historically it was how much money's in the bank account. Cool, we're going to take that down to a thousand dollars and go to the show this weekend. Whew. <laughs> That's a margin right there. Well, n- knowing knowing that oh, I have a transfer on on this day and on this day, and we're gonna have credit cards coming in from the show, and it, it's all gonna work itself out. It's not a big deal. But at the same time, we want to have as much buying power as possible in the position of being able to buy cards. Right, and because the secret layers and other things like that don't have a retail price from wholesale, the margin is naturally going to be smaller. And you could end up just paying buy list on those cards when somebody turns them in and, and enjoy a bigger margin. So let's talk pivot to talking about what's gone on in collectibles since COVID. Let's start with what did, what did you think 2020 was going to look like, say, circa last March, like a year ago? And, and how is it different versus how things turned out, if it is at all? So, so well, we can we can set the... We can set the uh, the, the stage of the, my backstory at this point. Uh, I had just secured a, a rather significant loan, uh, which happens in the business that that you know, lateral financing and whatnot happens uh, a lot. And uh, back in back in February, uh, I got a message from somebody who was saying, "Hey, can I get your opinion on on, on price on some of these cards?" And I have you know, two beta wheel of fortunes and four box jets and like all sorts of crazy, crazy cards. I'm like, oh, what are you looking to do? Like, I know you don't normally deal in the stuff in volume. It's like, yeah, well, I got all this. And, uh, you know, the deal I got on it was reasonable. And I'm like, okay, what do you want for it? So I'm not going to go into who I got this from or, or anything, but I basically spent a quarter million dollars on magic cards, <laughs> uh, where it was, it was half a half front and the, the other half financed over the next four months. Whew. And it was all, you know, it was all alpha, beta, unlimited type stuff. There were two, two unlimited and one beta lotus in the deal. Like, this is the sort of thing you find once a year. Sure. So, so I bought that in February. <laughs> oh, yeah. I buy, I buy multiple black border lotuses once a year. So that sounds about right. Well, as a vendor, so, he means. <laughs> I, I'm doing my job. But the story gets better. So, so that, that, was, that was February. Okay. So and, let's just pause in February for a second. Was COVID even on your radar? Uh, it was not. In in the general sense, we'll get to when it came onto my radar. Okay, so but, so continue. But, you know, at this point, it was oh, we have like two cases in Seattle, whatever. It's fine. So I fly out to uh, Magic Fest Phoenix. Uh, I stop in Dallas, Texas, for BGS uh, on the way. I drop off some some cards to get graded immediately. I get some cards uh, graded from for thirty day, which ended up coming back like the week after COVID hit. Like the week after the country shut down, so that was fortuitous timing, and I believe I've sold literally every single card in that deal. So I did that, and I now get to Grand Prix Phoenix, and I had somebody hit me up on Twitter, and said, "Hey, I'm thinking about buying a house, so I need to sell some cards," and they showed me what they had, and it was eight graded pieces of Alpha Power and 
the ninth was ninth <laughs> was ungraded. Uh, but it was like a uh, seven Lotus, maybe. Uh, I think it was an Alpha Lotus and, and BGS seven, and the rest of the power was all like eight or eight five or whatever. So I'm like, all right, well, here's you know another hundred grand. Okay, cool. And you know that was that was the middle of February. So now we get to March, and uh, I flew out to Magic Fest Reno, and. You know, we started to hear more about what was going on in China. So I was in the hotel room in Reno and was like, what, what is going to be a pain point for me with, you know, factory shutdowns in China? So I went on to bcwsupplies.com and I was like, I'm going to need top loaders. So <laughs> for, I, I, did, I did some quick math and counted up how many top loaders I would need to last from then until Christmas. And I ended up buying, you know, 200 cases of top loaders, which they happily filled the order and we got them, them in in four days or whatever. But I bought just this enormous number of, of top loaders, but that was all I was concerned about with COVID. So uh, I fly back home and, uh, you know, flew back out to Reno the next week for the Gamma Industry Trade Show. It's uh, all, um, you know, retailers for largely board game stores, but it's a good networking opportunity. And if you have a store, I encourage you to, you know, head out to head out to Gamma when they have one. And I, I presented at Gamma about buying cards and whatnot. And uh, that's when, that's when the world shut down. So I uh, flew back. Um, I was planning to go directly to Grand Prix Milwaukee, I believe at the time. Uh, so I was, I was on an airplane, obviously no masks at this point or anything. Uh, so I, I flew back there and well found out that the the show was canceled. Like, all right, well, this is awkward. Like my plan was to fly there, rent a car, drive back. So I ended up uh, flying into a different city in the in the Midwest, uh, just running a box truck, buying uh, like three million bulk on the way. Because I was like, I don't know what's going on, but you know I have these sorting machines and I have like ten employees. You know, I need to make sure that I'm able to keep everybody working. Like I don't want to, I don't want to lay people off when they're going to have problems. I want to, I want to try and take care of my employees as best I can. So I have three million bulk and drove back home. And I got an hour outside of town, started to feel kind of run down and like had a headache and like oh, none of this is great. So I like call my fiance and then end up you know quarantining for two weeks upstairs. Because uh, we have a big enough house where I can do that, so that is that is the scene of, uh, you know, what March looked like for me. So, so were you diagnosed? Did you have COVID no. at the time? No, I didn't. I didn't at the time. You just had like convention flu. Yeah, it was some something of that nature, or even hey, it's a little bit too warm out today, and I feel kind of kind of shaky. Uh, but but yeah, I, I I was fine at that point, um, and uh, I looked at I looked at where finances were and. You know, I I talked about January. I had, I had secured this really large loan. Well, I bought all these cards, and uh, I, I was pretty leveraged in Magic cards. So I wasn't like, panic, I need to dump everything, because when shows shut down, I don't really have a way to spend money either. I just mm-hmm. need to, like, sell enough to stay ahead of, of the loan payments. But, like, it's a short-term loan. You know, if you if you borrow a quarter million dollars, you are going to have to pay it back, you know, 20 grand a month. Like, it's it's, it's not like... It's not like you're trying to get like five hundred dollars or a thousand dollars a month. It was, it was kind of a big deal. Right. 
<laughs> as 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 we are all familiar with, given the number of quarter of a million dollar loans we've taken out. Again, it's a, it's a corporate loan. There's assets against it, so it's it's not like <laughs> it's not like this is a free roll and I'm I'm going to walk away from the bank. Right, 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 right. Uh, it's just yeah, so, it's just so funny there's, because there's a lot of ri- there's a lot of risk in in this scenario. It's just funny because for me and I think probably a lot of our listeners is just at a scale that's a, a little difficult to uh, appreciate. I think. Well, they may well. I mean, we think about the the average pro trader. The average pro trader is not a professional magic vendor, but they may be a professional something else. You know, like there's a professional chef in the pro trader. Uh, Discord, who own, owns a fairly prominent restaurant and posts like pictures of his like five star meals or whatever, that that guy's <laughs> that guy's had plenty of risk this year um, on this kind of scale. But do continue with how how your perspective on the industry progresses as COVID is unfurling and and lockdowns are starting to come into play. So I yeah you know, I I realize hey I need money but not too bad so. I'm gonna take I'm gonna take all the convention inventory and just list it all on TCG Player. Like, we don't need to own any of this. We know we're not gonna have shows for a while, so we 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 dump that off and you know start getting some money. And then uh, TCG Player's fulfillment center shut down, uh, which was phenomenal for us. Uh, I've said repeatedly I wish TCG Direct never existed. Um, it's it's awful for large stores. Um, I don't think it's awful for. Everybody, the average pro trader member, I'm sure it's great. Uh, store your product. Store your products is even better. Like both of these, both of these uh, services do provide value to some people. But if you gave me three realities, like one where direct never existed, one where there was direct and I was on it, one where there was direct and I was not on it, you know, I would much rather the one where everybody had to buy cards directly, because the nature of a marketplace means that people are buying. Uh, People are paying separate shipping charges from from different vendors. You know, if I if I have a card priced at, uh, sorry, if somebody needs four copies of some some crappy common, and TCG Player has seventy eight cents shipping on everything, so I have these copies priced at fifty cents each, and uh, they they order four from me, and they get them for two dollars and seventy eight cents. Now. You have somebody else who has them. You have four different other small sellers that have them for five cents each. Now all of a sudden they'd be paying eighty-three cents a copy, three dollars and thirty-two cents for all four. And even though the seller is only is charging you know ten percent of the price, they're also getting netting no money. And uh, there's just like a big inefficiency here. Whereas a larger seller just like gets paid off when they have all this additional inventory. So TCG Direct shuts down, and our Everybody on, on staff was just immediately miserable because a task that like they were clocked at that should take them like an hour and 15 minutes suddenly starts taking an hour 45 and it's, hey, what's going on? Why is everything so slow? Like, well, we went from having two and a half cards as an average order to like eight cards as an average order. Like, all right, well, I guess that's what's, ha- what's happening. So we just sold. And a lot of the profit in that era was kind of from the underbelly of, of under, under $5 individual cards. Because you saw people that were getting paychecks or starting to get unemployment or still working because so many Magic players do work retail-type jobs, that they're like, oh, I'm going to build a new EDH deck because I've been thinking about this for forever. And you know, you saw card, card prices jump up pretty dramatically in April. So we you know, had plenty of money then. Um, but my overall 
take an industry is like, yeah, I think we're still going to be in a little bit of trouble because, you know, there's there's not like urgency to, to buy cards. Like nobody needs to go buy an underground sea. And if you're playing commander at home with your friends, you're probably not going to spend uh, you know, $500 on an underground sea at the time. Now, all the high-end stuff was listed and across, you know, the, the middle of the summer, late summer, uh, really when we saw that the first stimulus check hit, we started to see some of these cards sell. And, you know, there was a lot of people that were uh, negotiating to buy power, multiple pieces of power. And, you know, all, all of a sudden, like, we just started to see cards selling. And, and the the TCG, uh, the cards that, that are listed directly on TCG Player with photos that we do are a different account. And, you know, that went from $1,000, a transfer, which is twice a week, up to like 5000 And like we sold a beta <laughs> right. time walk on TCG Player for, you know, $7,500. Um, you know, where people just, just hit the button and, and they get the card in four days or whatever. So I'm not really paying a lot of attention to all this because I don't fulfill the orders. It just it just happens on its own. And I just look at the bank account and I'm like, well, I, you know, I... My only concern, my, my two concerns are one, making sure that there's enough stuff for everybody to do, and two, that I'm I'm able to pay down these loans. Like if I if I leave the year with zero debt, I'll be very happy. And I was kind of just in sell mode because I don't know exactly what I'm doing in the industry. I don't know if there's going to be an industry. I don't know if we're gonna have shows again at that point, um, which may or may not be a thing. But you know, worst worst case scenario, I can walk away from the business with a, a pretty significant paycheck lump sum and, you know, go get a job working for somebody else in some other unrelated field. Uh, so I ended up uh, having somebody message me about that beta Lotus I bought back in February in like October. They're like, Hey, I want to trade you these two unlimited Lotuses plus like an alpha mind twist and uh, another card for, for this. I'm like, all right, cool. I like that. I, I make like a couple thousand dollars, but I, get, I pick up a lot of liquidity. I'm happy picking up liquidity. So I do that. Everything's great. And then we just kept selling stuff. Like I had a place at a Mishra's workshops and, you know, I sold one at, at 2200 And I was like, oh, that's kind of weird, but like cool. Because I previously had sold a bunch at 14 15 16 Sure. And then I'm like, okay, well, I'll just raise the price $200 on the, the other three. So next at 24, I'm like, all right, well, I guess I'll just raise the price $200 and then at 26. And then, you know, the last one that I still have at 2,800. So we just start to see the market explode from nowhere. And, and this is, and, this is fall. We're talking about fall. This is, this, yeah. This is like October, November, basically. Got it. I'm like, all right. So I, I tend to try to be risk adverse in a lot of these spots and I don't really want to go out and spend a bunch of money into, into hype. You know, I I looked at what happened uh, in, in, in twenty yeah, in twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen when all this happened last time, and you know you see a card like Peacekeeper, where uh, Peacekeeper is a reserveless rare from Weatherlight that's like fringe playable that does something unique in Commander, uh, has upkeep. It's a creature with upkeep two. You know, creatures can't attack you. Go from three dollars to you know my friend trading a hundred copies of them for a, a Nierman Unlimited Sapphire from from cool stuff <laughs> like all right so the car went from three to 20 back to back to four like i you know I'll, i'd buy copies at four or five dollars i'm not gonna keep buying copies of 20 so i kind of just 
sat on my war chest and had a bunch of money and was, was comfortable being out of debt. And like, that was just where my mind was. And now all of a sudden, you know, we, we saw the Pokemon explosion kind of happen. We saw, uh, we saw a alpha Lotus sell for a quarter million. Um, I, I believe Kyle's Lotus sold was, it was alpha and, and did that might've been like a beta nine five, but we had a, a very high grade Lotus sale. And uh, we, I looked in the, the box of high end cards and it was, it was basically empty at this point. So now we're like at the spot where I'm, I'm starting to spend money again. Because um, I feel like this, I feel like we're back at a new normal is, is really where we are. Not in a, in a strict sense and like, you know, I'm not here to buy uh, reserveless cards that were worth under $20 you know, six months ago. But, you know, I have, I have 50 duels on my desk I just bought. I have uh, like a set and a half of power I just bought because, you know, Lotus is probably going to be sticky around $10,000 for a while. And it's not like we're going to see a bunch of new lotuses hit the market, so that's kind of that's kind of my take on everything. So let's, I, I want to side. There's a, there's a bunch of fascinating narratives to dive into there, but there's a couple I want to latch onto. First is to back up to putting COVID aside. You're you're putting together a quarter million dollar deal on reserveless magic cards. What is the game plan? Are you looking to hold? through market appreciation are you looking to quick flip what when you get into a deal like that what do you what is the what is your end game so this is back when we still had events and you know i pay a lot of money to vend at channel fireball events and that's how we always have the booth in the front because i just spend more on, on vendor space and part of that is it's much easier to cover costs when you have expensive things to sell sure you know, if you're making 15% on a on a $2,000 card, it's much better than making 15% on a $20 card. And having being the only person in the room with a particularly nice item means you're able to well, kind of kind of charge a little bit more for it. I'm I'm not going to pretend I have the best prices in the room uh, on on anything, and I don't think I I hide that fact all that much. But one thing I've I've noticed a lot of times is that you have commander players in particular, but also old school players that in their mindset for an event, they say, well, I have this this deck I'm not using, and you know what? This other deck really needs a time twister. This real, other deck really needs a Judge Survival, if it is Judge Gaius Cradle, Beta Wheel of Fortune, whatever. Whatever the nice card is that they want for their deck. And they're going to go to this Magic Fest with cards already set aside that they want to trade in for this item that's in their head. And if you're, if you're the only vendor that has that card... Well, the internet kind of disappears because these people are anyone who is choosing to shop at a Grand Prix means that they value being able to see the item, being able to hold the item, being able being comfortable with the experience of getting the item in person, and doesn't necessarily want to do it via via mail, right? I, There's an in-person premium to get hands-on and know what you're getting, I, right? I would presume. And please correct me if I'm wrong, that there's also an angle there for those types of individuals because they get to walk in with, say, an entire EDH deck or a major stack of cards, walk in with a stack of cards, hand it to one guy who then hands them back that one card they want. And if you wanted to do that from home, you have to deal with filling out the buy list online at one store and maybe they're not buying all the cards you want or maybe they're paying way less on uh, the made the key cards in your deck so you have to split the orders and then you have to try and convert store credit which gets miserable so i i would presume that's also an angle as well right in in general like we we're providing we're providing a service by being there we're 
giving people a, a reason to sit down and trade. And, you know, all, all this is on the up and up and all, no, there's no, there's no sleight of hand in any of this. It's, it's having, right. having the goods for somebody to, to want to come and sit down. And, you know, even, even for old school cards, like, you know, if there's somebody who's playing alpha 40 and says, I need, so alpha 40 is a 40 card alpha deck with no, no limits for what you can play in your deck. So, oh, God. so if you they found a way to make old school even more expensive, <laughs> basically. So like if you're playing Merfolk, you know, you might have, uh, I don't know, 14 islands, the ancestral recall you own six Merfolk of the Pearl Trident, uh, 10 Lord of Atlantis and like four psionic blasts is your 40 card deck. And if you decide that, you know, I really need another Lord of Atlantis to make my deck run better. Well, you know, if I have a Lord of Atlantis, you're going to be very happy that you found a Lord of Atlantis that you like and, and can shuffle up in this deck. And that's kind of like the reality of some of these some of these older higher higher end cards. Sure. So, but if we're talking about a Lotus you buy in February of year X, or in 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 let's fast forward actually to October, where you are seeing the trend line, where we're clearly back in a pattern similar to 2017. Crypto's up. Reserve list is charging. It's going even beyond that. People are going after reserve, like non-reserve list, old original printing cards. We've got reported earlier on the cast tonight that Stang from Legends is supposedly a hundred dollar card, not a five dollar card anymore. The, you know, you're seeing old border foils um, get gobbled up. Do you start thinking to yourself, maybe I want to hold some of this inventory for a while? So I try not to hold stuff as like a general course of business. Um, you know, everything's kind of for sale. Sometimes I'll put uh, ambitious pricing on some cards. Um, if you think you know, if you think the market I, is trending uh, upward, uh, if I if I think that the in particular if I think the like supply demand curve is just like a little bit out of whack, um, black border duels, like like a German tropical island sort of thing. Is something that I've always charged uh, a, a premium on compared to some other people, but that's just a function of we're providing a different service to somebody who wants to buy it. Uh, that sort of thing gets listed with a photo on TCG Player and eBay. That's you know 600 DPI scan that TCG Player compresses down to, to 72 for whatever reason. <laughs> but but that that we're giving somebody the opportunity to buy like the exact version they want because you know if you're buying it. Uh, an MP or HP card, would you rather see the photo of what you're buying or see those two words moderately played and, and hope, you know, and hope that you have the same agreeable definition of. Right. And oftentimes I'll, I'll ask for you know 5% more or 10% more on a card like that and uh, compared to, to what some of the people sure. in the market are. But you know, in general, it's kind of make my margin and go home. Now what's happened from everything I bought in the past, I don't know, two or three months is you know I have to go through and put prices on the high end stuff. I I tend to do all the high end and weird stuff myself, so a lot of it just sat in the box for a while. Um, I I did a uh, I did a weird deal where somebody like owed me ten grand and uh, they they bought some cards, mailed them to me, and it was all just uh, near mint, um, you know, like Urza Saga type block type cards, like Academy Rector, and I like had just put it aside in a box I was intending to ship to TCG Player for TCG Player Story Your Products because one of the best ways you can make money off TCG Player Story Your Products is 
sending them near mint condition cards because once they say once they enter the one on the spreadsheet for you own one near mint copy there you you're never going to lose money on you don't have a re- rejection rate issue like you do if you merchant fulfill something like that to tcg player direct so i put in the box and you know i paid like 35 dollars on an academy rector and we're going to sell it for like 130 or whatever um, just because I just never got around to dealing with the stuff. So like that that has happened more and more um, in the late term of the pandemic. But like, I don't go out of my way to do where, this. Where prices are appreciating because you're behind. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I, I want it, James. I From now on, you have to say that my pricing is ambitious. That's the <laughs> definition. Tra- Travis use. is an expert in the prices appreciating because he's behind on listing inventory. Yeah, I, I, I get cards and uh, decide what price I want for them and list them and then just let them sit until I get a happy little ding. Yeah, I mean, so, Michael, clearly you are in tune with what's been going on in the collectible space in the last year um, and for most of the last decade. W- would it be fair to say that you agree that we are in a boisterous phase for collectibles in general? Yes, the everyone's very excited about this market. That, that's for sure. Uh, what what is your interpretation of the dynamics behind the kind of ridiculous explosion in collectibles? Not just Magic or Pokemon, but really across the board um, in collectibles. We have we have labeled a bunch of different factors on cast or over the last year. We've talked about. Um, People whose cash flow was never interrupted, you know, uh, mid to high income earning households that have la- less access to spending money on cars and clothes and vacations and thereby have actually more disposable income during the pandemic and are more prone to buying online. We've talked about crypto and its influence on the collectibles industry, as we saw in 2017 with uh, f- both you know, Bitcoin farmers and and crypto speculators fleeing to the relative safe harbor of uh, invisible assets. We we've talked about um, the the knock on effects of Pokemon collectibles kind of taking over the YouTube space and the Logan Pauls and and uh, investment bankers doing box cracks on live stream being a major factor. I, I, how do you know rank the various influences that have led us to where we currently are in the in the in the hobby Uh, i think it's it's a combination i think the biggest factor is you know you take somebody who has middle to high income um, does reasonably well for themselves and let's say you know let's say that uh every year your family goes to disney world for a vacation and you have you know fifteen thousand dollars budgeted for that which is an astronomical amount of money for a disney vacation but yeah, you could you could spend it if you were really trying. <laughs> Just stay on on uh, on the park grounds, and you're you're there, right? <laughs> um, I I had a Disney annual pass uh, that ended like the November before the pandemic or something, so I was a little a little fortunate there. But realistically, you know, you you have spent fifteen thousand dollars every year doing this. Well, now you don't have that, and you know you're going to find something to spend your money on. So, like, I think that's probably the biggest factor, at least initially, in, in all of this. Uh, and then, and so where this goes is, you know, next year you're allowed to go. Well, maybe you want to spend twenty thousand on the vacation instead, because, you know, you you can do it and you you have a little more money, and like, you know, you you start 
uh, you start staying for an extra days or like once money starts getting spent in these other directions, um, you're going to see some of the assets being bought up in this go back on the market because that's just the way these things have and flow. It's I'm going to sell, I'm going to sell this Lotus to, you know, put a deck on the house or whatever. Because Lotus might be up two times. So psychologically, they're already feeling like it's free money. Right. So are you anticipating a retraction on the collectibles market once fit, you know, probably late this year, early next year, as people begin to return a wholesale to the types of stuff they were doing beforehand? Uh, I, I can't talking about the collectibles market is a little bit difficult because we have to define what the collectibles market is. And like, you know, if you're going to tell me that a, if, if you're going to ask me, do you think a base set one uh, first edition Pokemon box is going to be above or below half a million dollars on, you know, December 1st, 2023, I'm probably going to say above. But if you take uh, a card like, like Mind Over Matter, and Mind Over Matter is my favorite example for this because the card's like unplayable garbage in every format. Um, I could hear James looking up Mind Over Matter. In nope, the background. I, I know the card. I'm from Urza era. Okay. No, that was actually that was actually me because I just want to make sure my, my price is correct. You know, this is a seventy dollar card on TCG Player right now for like the cheapest available copies. Like, first off, a card doesn't go from being a poorly selling five dollar card to a good selling seventy dollar card. <laughs> like, I, if if some combo gets printed, or whatever, yeah, I I get that it can become a good selling card at a higher price, but. Like nothing's changed with this card. It's it's exactly as good or bad as it was six months ago as it's today. So, yes, this card is seventy dollars, but it doesn't mean that there's people spending seventy dollars on it actively. So that's half of it. But the other half is that when we have shows resume for this tier in particular, um, which I can realistically define as like, uh, you know, m- Mirage to. Uh, Urza's Destiny reserveless cards, especially non-foil, you know, I would expect us to buy between six and ten copies of Mind Over Matter at the first event, and like, you know, you multiply that across a couple of vendors, and you know, is there demand to buy fifty copies of Mind Over Matter in the U.S. market in the two to four week span after the first event at seventy dollars? And the answer is like, probably not. Uh, Mind Over Matter, I think I buy listed almost a hundred copies to another vendor. Uh, like December 2019 or so, because there, there again, there's just not intrinsic demand on cards like this uh, to be able to move a lot of copies. Right, and so the argument we're making here is that there is a lot of inventory that is locked up with people staying at home, no in-person buy listening at their local LGS, no big events to attend, and that as soon as the trend line reverses and people can, that inventory is unlocked, we should see downward pressure on the cards whose price cannot be justified by their actual demand profile. Right. I think that's that's the simplest reduction of all this. Um, so in, in Magic, like something like... Basically, there, there has to be an owner of this product for the price to go down. And like on the high-end stuff, there are there are way more people who own this than most people would expect. And like, you know, today I got offered a revised box and like I... You know, this person said, "Oh yeah, it's my, it's my second revised box. I I can I can get rid of one now." And it's somebody I've been buying from for a while, so I'm not like, I'm not surprised that they have two revised boxes. But like that sort of stuff does come to market, 
because there there is supply. You know, underground sea, there's a, a reasonable amount of supply that exists. Um, you know, somebody who is upset that Oko got banned might sell their underground seas because they like aren't playing Legacy anymore. And like you're going to see a world where these cards start to come back in into into focus. Um, in like in 2017, the last spike, I ended up having like 200 revised duels or 300 revised duels because we were just buying them faster than we could sell them. And I ended up selling every duel I had to somebody at Gen Con for 40 grand. I like flew out there in the morning and flew back at night just to just to meet up for this one deal. Um, and obviously, you know, he owns a pile of duels now and he'll probably be selling them into this spike i would i would guess but that was like the tail end of that spike where prices kept coming down because there just weren't additional buyers at that price and that's really kind of how this all ends for everything except for like the the top tier items so let's say let's we're talking about a card like a mind over matter or some random old border foil like i think foil rorix blade wing from onslaught was on the spikes list this week um, or like Stang from Legends. When you see, a, you know, 300 copies of these cards disappear off the market, how do you interpret the attribution of those purchases between random magic player potentially experiencing FOMO, speculator, armchair speculator magic player versus vendors? Like if Are you asking like... If 100 copies of Mind Over Matter disappear... How many of them do you think went into player who intends to use and or collect the card versus speculator versus vendor? Uh, I'm not particularly well tied into like the player community, the commander community or anything like that. Um, but from what we're seeing on the order side, like there's some, there's some people that are just spending a lot of money on some of this stuff and they're, they're hoping to strike it rich. And on a lot of these cards that that's kind of come true already. And that's, it's, it's good for them. Um, but like to, to have price increases that actually, uh, have legs and actually stick, you need these cards to just completely disappear from the market for a, a very long time. So something like unlimited time twister, you know, where does it, where's an unlimited time twister go? Well, it goes into, uh, a sleeve and a hundred card commander deck and gets shuffled until they decide that they want to build a deck that runs Mishra's Workshop or Bizarre Baghdad or Tabernacle, and they need to get rid of their Time Twister to be able to buy one of those cards. Uh, but there's no world where, like, this person is not going to continue playing this forever. Um, if you wanted a good example of this in a, like, not uh, reserveless sense, if you take a card like like Bloom Tender or um, Zakama Primal Calamity, right, which is a mythic rare from Rivals of Ixalan, a four-year-old set now, you know, the supply of, of those cards just continues to shrink because every copy that gets bought is just immediately going into a, into a sleeve, into a commander deck, or into a 60-card casual deck even. Uh, for Zakama, I'm sure it's in a lot of 60-card dragon decks. Sorry, dinosaur decks. But you don't see these ever hit the market. Whereas somebody buying, you know, Stang, like, they need to sell them at some point. And, like, yeah, somebody's going to be holding the bag when the price retracts somewhere along this line, but like, you know, that, that will happen eventually. Like there, there are copies that will hit the market. Do you agree that the advent of EDH as the primary format for magic is a major boon for the singles vendor? Uh, it is, it is a boon to everything except for labor. Um, sure. 
but <laughs> but no, it is uh, Commander has been has been phenomenal for Magic um, because it allows people to have the creative uh, freedom to build and interact with the game in a way that uh, they they choose, they get to enjoy that lines up with how they want to experience magic and however they they think about the game that's that's the type of decks they can do and if they want to have you know an artist commander deck where every single uh, card has been uh, drawn and written on by Richard Kane Ferguson they can they can do that and, and everybody's happy because they're enjoying playing magic yeah i mean it, it, it... they also get the benefit of uh buying way way more way more expensive cards which also seems pretty good for you guys and sitting on them for a longer period of time and i would expect you're also less sensitive to uh price shifts with the rise of the edh market as well you don't have competitive staples that skyrocket when you don't have enough or plummet when they uh the meta changes and in two weeks they lose half their value i mean it's 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 also good for selling sealed product like somebody needing a single copy of something is way better than somebody needing four uh, it means you don't really have to worry about a sign card or if you have a rob alexander signed hollowed fountain foil that's like 200 dollars. somebody needs one for commander they're like yeah I'll, I'll, I'll buy that one it's the cheapest one in the room I, I i can live with the signature it's fine but if it's a competitive player that's looking for that card they're going to say okay well this one's signed in black and this one's signed in silver and this one was signed at the end of the day, so it's a squiggle and not his full name. And like you just have a lot of problems with with uh, right selling a lot of these types of material to competitive players. It, it's pretty. It's amazing to me, fascinating that Wizards stumbled upon the format that's probably best for the economics of the game <laughs> from external sources. And the you know the part of it that I think is the biggest boon is that intersection of being able to choose how competitive you want your deck to be and how creative you want your deck to be and then the collectability that gets layered over top of that where the standard culture is you're going to play the deck that makes sense in the meta and if it fades from the meta then you're going to get rid of the deck and buy a new deck whereas with commander players okay i'm bored of playing my attracts deck or whatever i'm just going to put it back in the closet and build a new one and then over time i'm i own a bunch of decks which was something that has always existed in the casual scene of magic but that the enfranchised players up until you know the early mid 2010s you know had been kind of led away from culturally because of the focus on the pro scene and shifts in the meta and you know what do we need to play this week uh and i mean certainly we, we hear it all the time about you know as you said a time twister that disappears into a commander collection and never to return is going to have a much easier time holding a new price plateau than random reserve list card x peacekeeper or whatever that hardly sees any play right yeah uh basically all all of that is is my perception of the format like Competitive play is just, uh, you know, it's driven by the next thing, but it also doesn't really relate to uh, how people experience magic. Like, if you if you want to talk about what the best magic events were of all time, and like, we're going to discount Grand Prix Vegas, right? Because Vegas uh, has its own mystique of being Vegas, and also just being in that city where you get to do 
Vegas stuff on the side. You know, what do you think the like the most iconic Magic event was, or most well known? GP. The one that jumps out to me is the one I was at. I think it was either GP Jersey twenty thirteen or fourteen when Power took off that weekend. It was like a major legacy event. Yeah, it was Grand Prix Jersey 2014. Star City ran it. It was the Can't Miss Magic event of of 2014. Uh, my store was open at the time. I believe I judged that event was was what happened. Uh, but you had a 7,000-person event. You had people uh, signing up for the main event with a burn deck that their friend gave them because they wanted to play in that event. They just wanted to be around it. Uh, you had people that like were signing up and dropping from the main event just to say they played in it like the 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 buzz and the interest in this event was just so substantial and i think i think it was a cheaper event it was like 50 or 60 dollars i don't think it was at 100 yet uh, but but the the story about the event wasn't like playing magic the gathering and like who won um i don't know if i could tell you who won that event because it doesn't matter what i can tell you is like you know that i had a friend who wanted to sell me his collection but instead sold it to a vendor because uh, I like, couldn't get off the floor to, to spend time with them. Uh, sort of sort of things that happened at that event, um, which you know is is what it is. Uh, but like magic, magic like should be fun. These events should be enjoyable for everybody. And you know the 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 games where you go, you know the the events where you go two two drop and then like have have a great meal. Like that's that's all people actually care about at these events which is what Commander enables people to do. <laughs> this leads into a question that I was thinking about. Do you think that we see competitive format GPs return? I think the competitive structure of Magic the Gathering needs a lot of work. There's a lot of ways of making uh, making Magic work better. Uh, I've long suggested the idea of uh, doing flights for day one where it's like a 128 person uh, flight. And then you have to, you know, six, two or, or like you have to like five, two or, or you know, four, one, maybe uh, this event to, to make it to, to day two. But like we, we have this problem where you have an event structure that was designed around a three to 400 person event and is now trying to scale up to two or 3000 people and there's this big gap in the middle where, you know, you have somebody finish the match in 25 minutes and then wait an hour to play again. And like, that's not the experience that, that needs to be created for anybody here. Um, you know, you don't need events ending at, at 9.30 at night or whatever. As a, as a vendor, when they announced the, sh- the branding shift to Magic Fest as opposed to GP, were you expecting more of a well-rounded experience that was going to keep more bodies flowing to the vendor tables? Uh, I've, I've talked to Channel Fireball about some elements of this, and it's really hard to define what a what a festival-type environment should be, how we can go about right. creating something like that. Uh, any sort of programming content, guests, cosplay, like that st- type of stuff doesn't really get the traction and sign-on from the players. So it's a big question of what do you do that an average player would find appealing that uh, will actually get somewhere. Um, I think one of the one of the ways of doing both of this might be that you have an event that starts at ten o'clock in the morning, but is only you know like a four round like 
like the the main event starts at 10 o'clock it's four rounds and then the rest of the day is like people doing whatever on the side um you know we saw we saw the command zone start uh like october last year november last year at magic fests uh sorry 2019 and like that just sells out every time and it's kind of just completely incredible seeing people that will pay money to have a dedicated table and, and experience here um, and it's it's great for the game but the question is like what more can be done for people that just want a place to play commander with their friends sure because that's a the, the most addressable market <laughs> but also b the segment that's probably spending the most of the game Do, I, I see that's interesting because you know i didn't i have not been to any of the command fests but i don't know as a player even someone who 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 stopped playing competitively for a while and was only playing EDH like the idea of going to a command fest which is just like go and play EDH seemed novel at first but if that was all GPs were I don't know if that would be something that I'd be interested in doing so sorry what I'm, what like, I'm talking about is the the command zone element inside of a traditional magic yeah. fest yeah um, and it's and, literally a, a gated off area where people pay like you know $40 for a day pass or $100 for a three-day pass, and they can sit down at the tables and, and they have a dedicated area to uh, play Commander. And there's there's a couple like scheduled events that, that people can choose to partake in, but it's also just driving six hours in a car with your friends to sit at a table just like you can do at home and, and play Magic. And I know that's awful and reductionist and Commander players, I, I really do not have anything against you and understand that this is really fun. Um, but it's just, it's it's mind-blowing for me, like, how does how how does this become an event in a way that like is exciting and scalable and like gets people in the door to sell me more cards? It, it definitely it has always felt to me like when I heard that they were doing Magic Fest, I thought the branding aspect was funny, but I was hoping that they had had a brainstorm about how to turn it into a fe- festival atmosphere, and I was totally fine if they were going to pivot away from the all day grinder structure on the premise that you could create something that had a high higher sticky factor from a, you know, a friends and family perspective, because if you look at magic events, 10, 15 years ago, you know, vending versus competing was heavily skewed towards the competing. So anything that moves it towards a true festival atmosphere has the potential for people, significant others to be on the floor and they're spending money on, gifts for their significant other or their friends and family or their kids and they're buying food on site and they're buying a t-shirt and whatever and it's enriching the economy of the entire event so there's something there's certainly there's more there's a step we haven't got to is i guess what i'm getting at that i'm very curious to see whether they can solve the equation yeah i would i would assume that you know john and all everyone over at cfb has spent a lot of time and effort thinking about this um, just throughout uh, throughout the, the past year. But at the same time, like some of the things you're trying to have happen are actually really bad for the game. Um, if you look at a, uh, a Magic Fest and New Jersey, the, the current New Jersey venue, uh, Secaucus, is p- probably one of the best examples. Um, that venue has massive bathroom problems. It has uh, it's it's overcapacity when there was events, and that's like a two thousand person event. But if you have a 
comic convention in the exact same hall, you can have like seven or 8,000 people there through the door shopping, shopping vendors and doing, doing everything else. But it's just magic is just very, very space intensive, very resource intensive where like the cost structure of running these events doesn't line up in a way that is uh, appealing to spending more money on, on any of the stuff from the, the, uh, you know, the venue or, or uh, uh, promoter side, the organizer side, because like nobody's actually getting rich off this. I think CFB's taken a loss on a number of events since they took over uh, and probably made up with others, but like, you know, the, the cost structure between needing a certain size hall and then needing as many staff as they do between judge staff and, and organizational staff means that like, there's just a big disconnect of how to make money. Fair. Hmm. All right, let's take a sidestep. You were pretty deep in on uh, Double Masters VIP packs, if I recall correctly. Uh, yes, I was. <laughs> uh, looking back, do you, was that a satisfactory result so far for you? So I I achieved like eighty five or ninety percent sell through on that. Nice. Uh, I didn't I didn't run a tight run tight numbers of like where we actually got with all of it, but like you know I I had a plan going in. Um, I I actually like increased the numbers at, at distribution multiple times, and really the the takeaway here is that whenever Watsi does an innovation oriented product. And you can see this with Time Spiral Remastered, honestly. It's the same thing. Uh, they understand how to make it not fail. Um, basically, what I mean by innovation is like the first time they're doing something unique, like like the VIP packaging, You know, they're going to make it push. They're going to go out there. They're going to make it exciting. And they're going to make sure that there's enough reason to care to get people to buy the product. Now, the second time they do something like this is when they cut it back and probably undershoot the market and, and really mess up. So like, you know, you can't just go big on everything magic and, and hope for the best. But if you look at like modern masters, 2013, you know, they, they had an idea of what they wanted to do and like, they knew what the cars were worth. They knew what their EV was. They knew modern was, was popular, but they, they knew they needed to sell this product, right? Like just think about it. the person designing this took a gamble and, went out there to to make their idea come to life. You had multiple people say, yeah, I'll sign off on this, but like, you know, this better not be another <laughs> you know, Saviors of Kamigawa, right? Sure. Right. So you you have this product that ends up being uh, as pushed as they think it can they can get away with. And that's that's kind of what happened here. And then, you know, the market kind of didn't work out long term because there wasn't actual demand on these cards. There was just perceived demand. Uh I I know uh, I've I sold Force of Wills for you know I started Force of Wills at three hundred dollars to get some sales and then got up to like five hundred at some point and sold out and like I think I lost money on Forces because I had to uh, get some from someone else to make all the deals work but you know the Force of Wills like way down from there Dark Confidants like fifteen dollars now like the the perceived price of these cards was so high at the start that. Uh, nobody really knew how to how to approach it correctly, which meant that like whatever the TCG player number was was kind of just what what people thought was fair and like 
you know, I was aggressively promoting our website and, and making the prices better uh, than the TCG number, but like, you know, Avacyn was not going to be a, a $300 magic card, right? There's no world where the, the extended art foil Avacyn is a $300 card. It's interesting that you say that because, and and that you also reference Time Spiral because, from my viewpoint, the issue with VIP isn't the cards involved; it's how many they printed. The front loading of the VIP packs being busted. So, for instance, I think if I if I got this wrong, correct me, but I think you had a few thousand of the VIPs yourself, right? Yeah, we opened about two thousand. The, the gaming company uh, who is on TCG Player, and if you uh, sell on TCG Player, especially a recent product, you know who they are. Uh, cracked, I believe, more than me. Um, just judging by like how much supply they had and like competing on price of them and whatnot. Sure. And so the point I'm making is that everybody who was anybody in vending or MGG Finance or spe- Armchair Speculation bought as much VIP as they could get their hands on. Like I know pro traders, we did deals like hundreds and hundreds of, of cases of VIP and got our hands on as much Japanese as we could get our hands on. And all of that got cracked for flipping or speculating more or less in the first two or three weeks. Right. And then come December wizards, is pushing more of it through the distribution pipeline that clearly didn't sell out previously. So compare that to say something like Time Spiral Remastered, where all indications are that it's going to be a fairly limited print run, one shot and done. And now we're hearing that the you know the drop rate for the foil uh, time shifted cards is going to be low enough <laughs> that some of them are going to be very pricey indeed, because the niche that they address, even if it's tiny is probably not going to get fully serviced. Well, if you look at this from the perspective of like every set hits an equilibrium, right? And like there's there's a well, going back to like the three-tier system, you know, Watsy sold this to a distributor, the distributor sells it to the store. The store has the option to buy more product from from the distributor if if supply allows and if opening this product for singles and selling the singles individually is a profitable decision, they a rational actor in the market will continue to buy boxes from distribution to open. So it doesn't matter what is in the set. As long as supply exists from the distributor, uh, card prices will hit that equilibrium eventually. Right. You know, if if they if they reprinted Black Lotus as one of those in there. They, Black Lotus will uh, be worth, you know, whatever, 121 times the cost of a package from distribution. And that's the equilibrium, and that's just, like, where this ends up. So when you start to see prices increase, like, like Jeweled Lotus, that's a result of supply being constricted and the market having to orient itself against what the actual supply of singles in the market is, the actual demand. So, like, assuming that there is a baseline level of demand and constrained supply... Um, you know, you're going to see these these card prices generally go up. These the boxes generally go up, uh, almost regardless of, of what's in there, uh, assuming that it's it's desirable. But at the same way, you know, you look at you look at base time spiral, right? The cards they're reprinting. Obviously, they're not reprinting the entire set. They're reprinting cards that are 
or marginally better, marginally more interesting to, to make a good draft format, you know, they need to get uh, roughly, you know, we'll call it like $7 in, in singles value uh, across across the set or alternatively uh, seven times 121 cards in the sheet, roughly like $800 in like overall uh, set equity. And like, you know, we've seen some like big heavy hitters on on the the uh, old frame reprint sheet because they they kind of figured out okay we have three fifty or four hundred dollars in time spiral cards because time spiral as a block doesn't have a lot of very valuable cards because everything's been reprinted multiple times from that set almost across the board. But we now need to come up with like four hundred dollars in value on this side and like really that that's kind of it's kind of happening with with you know the Thoughtsies reprint even even something like the Ponderers like. You know, there's a lot of the value just kind of sunk there. Sure. Is is it fair to say that you would prefer that they had pulled back on the VIP and and ended up in more a situation closer to Commander Legends, at least on the CB side of Commander Legends? So if we if we look at like a market overall, and you know that that demand is is at one hundred on a product. Is it better to have to print ninety or is it better to print one hundred and ten? If you're wizards, you probably want to. I would think you'd want to print ninety. Yeah, it's because it keeps it keeps it more exciting. It's much better for everybody when the product is just underprinted enough to be uh, interesting in the market. Sure. Right. So people are trying to find it. Uh, you know, I don't know if you do much with Pokemon, but like if you walk into uh, if you walk into a store, if you walk into a Walmart and see that they have packs of, uh, you know, Darkness Ablaze on the shelf at $4 a pack, how does how do you emotionally react to that? Right. It's a, tr- it's a huge difference in the Pokemon market right now that every time you walk into a Walmart, that whole aisle is, like, swept. There's <laughs> literally nothing left on the shelf versus when it felt like it was everywhere. But if But if you walk in and, like... There's one pack sitting there forgotten in the corner with like, you know, a shirt thrown over it that you find like you are getting genuine excitement about this other company's product in a way that like just never happens with magic. It it happened back when some of those commander decks were whatever, 80 bucks sealed still and you wandered in and found a the oh, true yeah, name yeah. nemesis the, deck. The, the, the true <laughs> name nemesis deck definitely was a thing until they reprinted it the following summer. Uh, yeah. All the C16 decks are like the really good example with the Traxa and whatnot. Oh, yeah, yeah, Traxa, Bray, et cetera. True. Yeah, the $400 commander deck now. But but it didn't happen often, that's for sure. So like in this case, you know, just discounting the Amazon effect, but like seeing that there's demand for the cars, seeing that there's like some scarcity on the on the, the supply side and like we know there's some constrained supply, like as long as Watsi has the ability to react because – they can choose to print more at will and you know, take take uh, requests for pre-orders and whatnot from, from distribution. Like having, going going back to like the Beanie Baby era, uh, someone I used to work for had, had a store at that point and, you know, Beanie Baby Wednesday when the, the new shipment was received, he'd take his invoice and just tape it up on the wall and say, hey, this is what I got. And like there was a line out the door of people wanting to buy their one allocated Beanie Baby because... 
they were excited about this product. And like, that's the one thing you can't buy as a company is genuine customer excitement. You can only like manufacture it. So anytime that you have supply be just slightly under actual demand is, is just a profitable action. Right. Have, do you have your fingers in the flesh and blood pie at all? Uh, <laughs> do, you, do you have Monarch on pre-order? <laughs> so I am fully uh, out of flesh and blood. I have no desire to interact with it. Uh, you know, I'm, so I'm, I'm talking about uh, it's awesome when there's excitement over the product. It's awesome when there's there's some some amount of scarcity on the product because it means that there's demand. It means that stores are able to make money on the product. Except Flesh and Blood just has this nonsense manufactured rarity with uh, the first edition boxes and the regular boxes. And like they've kind of used this first edition concept to get high selling results uh, down the line of like the first couple sets. You know, you have this, this box selling for $1,000, this card selling for 500 whatever the numbers may be, that have driven consumer demand on the later sets. And that's not like, that's not like a healthy action because you're like trying to like thin slice some FOMO into your game whereas like Magic and, and Pokemon are like a, a actively playable game that just like have some supply issues and like I know the difference isn't particularly wide um, but also I'm just I'm not interested in spending money on, on new games on new products like we saw this with uh, the Star Wars dice game, we saw this with Final Fantasy, we're going to see this with Dragon Ball, uh, we saw this with Dragon Ball already, we're probably going to see it with Dragon Ball again. Digimon. Like, or Digimon, I'm sorry, yes. Where you have this nice little wave where, you know, the odd number sets, starting with number one, are underprinted and hard to find and rare and exciting, and then the even number sets are overproduced and like you can't sell them above cost and it just goes back and forth until nobody cares about the game because there's no player base because people can't buy this product ever because they just like need the odd or even boxes as as you know, as as it goes well and as and, and with flesh and blood it's hard to make any argument to the contrary on the critique of the speculation because <laughs> literally nobody can play it unless they live in New Zealand so because everywhere else just can't run tournaments. Now New Zealand's going to have this like burgeoning flesh and blood industry. Well, I mean they're from they're from they're from they're from, they're from New Zealand. Says. So I mean that was that was always going to be the case that that was that was the oh, nucleus of the player. I base. thought I thought you were referring to the fact that New Zealand is like one of the only Well, it just so happens that both of those things are true. Yeah, control. I mean it just so happens that both of those things are true. But Michael's absolutely right, right that yeah. the the model for flesh and blood uh i i'm not sure i buy that it's not sustainable i think it depends on whether anyone ever actually gets to play the game but i will say that the current scenario is not sustainable because no one can play the game <laughs> the i i am actually curious though what do you think would happen if wizards implemented that model what if like the next time back to ravnica there's a first edition box and it's just it's the first wave only you can only get it on pre-order that's got a special card in it you can't get on the future boxes etc i think watsy learned this lesson in like 1998 uh with with nalothny dragon um i'll come back to why that's the that's the example but like this this hyper exclusive i need this to play mindset is something that i think watsy's really shied away from because they understand that that 
the entire set of cars should generally be accessible for everybody. Um, and that having, having this like hyper exclusive thing, uh, isn't, isn't healthy, but we're also talking, you know, shades of exclusivity, right? Like the, the hundred dollar Allosaurus Shepard when there's 15 copies on TCG player. Yeah. That card's not common. It's not cheap. It's not easy for someone to get, but it's, it's attainable. You can walk into your store and, and get it. Like there's no, there's no shenanigans going on. There's no barrier to like being able to play with this card. Um, Nalothny Dragon was a promo at DragonCon back in the day yeah. and caused Watsi a ton of issues because people were writing in saying, you know, DragonCon's in Atlanta. I'm in I'm in Seattle. I'm in California. Whatever. I'm not going to make it to DragonCon. I, but like, how do I get this card? Like, I, every other card in your game, I can just walk into my store and just buy or, you know, buy the book and get the Mana Crypt or Sewers Vestark or whatever. But like, there's a way for me to do this and yet, I can't get this card, and like I, I think that's kind of just a, a bad look overall in terms of in terms of playing the game. Now, art art variants happen all the time. Like, you know, there's Japanese exclusive Sarah Angels and you know crop rotation and Voltaic Key like magazine promos. They're still coming out that like, yeah, it's it's restricted to be able to get it, but you can still play with crop rotation or Voltaic Key. You don't need that particular version. So like. If if there was a if there was a box topper in the first wave, like yeah, maybe that'll get some traction. But like, I don't think that uh, I don't think that if the hollow foil stamp on the mythics of this box was gold instead of silver, you would see that card be worth three times as much. I certainly think it depends on how they go about it. But it is worth noting that with in terms of access to cards, uh, Flesh and Blood is very cognizant of that issue. And the cold foils are, are just a, a different treatment of cards that are commonly available in the unlimited version of the set. And a couple of the other like super, super rare promos are not necessarily playable. <laughs> or more to the point, they are more curiosities than they are S-tier cards by design. Yep. Yeah. Refresh my memory as the proxy for our sure. audience. Did Flesh, Flesh and Blood was printing unique cards in no. the, the the very first no. edition there, there's cold foils are the only thing that are are unique to the first edition flesh and blood boxes and they are equipment okay. that you can easily get in unlimited boxes they just have a special foil treatment that has like a metallic sheen to it and okay but you but, you can, but you can get thought. the cards um, now, th- now they do okay. also have like these legendaries that are one every twenty or thirty boxes or something, um, but it's it's debatable what which ones you need and whether you need them. Um, part of the issue is that their meta isn't fully formed yet because they claim that this next set, the fourth set, Monarch, is the representation of what they always intended for the game, and that the three sets prior are only lead ups to that. So it's. Un- now the other thing that's interesting about that game is that they are it's also a non-rotating game. So in theory, over time, their meta probably collapses down to a very narrow slice of their available card pool. Well, you know, they claim it's non-rotating, but it's not rotating until it suits them for it <laughs> not to be. Or until they launch the second format, sure. Uh, you, you know, it's, uh, for, for, you know, <laughs> Mike's on, so we should listen to him. But 
I don't know if, I, we, if we've actually discussed this quite yet. Uh, it's the type of thing where I could see, on the one hand, I could see Wizards absolutely saying, okay, we're going to have a, a sort of a first edition of whatever, Strixhaven, where the first set of booster boxes have these special treatment of cards available in them. They're only going to be in the first wave in the same way that like priceless treasures were in Zendikar. Um, the cards are not mechanically unique. They're just different art versions or whatever, special showcases of some of the key cards um, as a way to sort of drive that additional excitement. But the catch to that is that it doesn't seem to quite line up with the rest of their patterns, at least from, from, from my perspective, because that's driving additional excitement on like a draft or, or the set booster boxes, which doesn't seem to be as much what they've been shooting for. Like it seems like they're they'd rather just take those cards and put them in a secret layer or some other product like that. So I I think we can almost say that Watsy has done this now that I kind of understand the concept more, right? Because like Guilds of Ravnica Mythic Edition is literally a Guilds of Ravnica booster box with special cards that you can only mm-hmm. get in that product right this is true it's uh it was nine packs i believe plus the planeswalkers no mythic edition was 24 packs it was 20 you got 24 uh, 24 that's right it was it was a draft it was a draft Uh, that's right and everybody gets a planeswalker the special a special planeswalker so that is that's fair it is it is it isn't it's like it's not exactly the same but it's very similar well one of the ways that it's not that it's dissimilar is that in theory (laughs) from Manufacturer to distributor to retailer, the price point for regular flesh and blood boxes is the same as unlimited. In practice, we have Monarch boxes that are wholesaled at whatever, $60 or $55, going for $250 on pre-order. Right. And that, like, I don't think that that's a fair thing to do to your customers. Um, I don't think England as a country or Germany as a country are going to be looking fondly at that, um, referring to the <laughs> loot box legislation sure. going on over there, mm-hmm. where you have like yeah. a much stronger gambling element than uh, than would appear otherwise. Right? Like if your argument is, oh yeah, you buy this this pack of cards and you get a rare in every pack, and like yeah, it might be a different rare, but it's like the, the same basic thing. Like that's kind of the counter argument, but. When you're saying, oh, well, you buy the special box and get the slightly, slightly different thing. Like, we're going to see more of that develop in the next five years. Um, who knows how that ends up. What do you think, what do you think we're going to get with Modern Horizons 2 this summer? Do you think VIP back, packs are back on the, on the menu? Do I think we can see VIP packs in uh, MH2? So I guess part of this boils down to like the the quarter structure of uh, of uh, financial reporting, right? Where like they need something exciting for the summer to to keep demand going. Um, is there enough equity to do VIP? So I think the decision is: do you do like a collector booster treatment, or do you do VIP? And that every set in general is getting one or the other. Um, which I think has been true except for like Time Spiral Remastered, which doesn't have uh, VIP, but like has unique foiling. So it's, it's a little different, uh, but they haven't been fond of doing collector boost. I guess, I guess Commander Legends has a collector booster, right? Uh, but there's no, there's only 
extended art foils in it, right? There's no other art variants in the set? Correct. Is that right? Okay. Whereas uh, all the other sets have like this mechanically interesting collector booster treatment. So like it, if the question is, will MH2 have either collector boosters or uh, or VIP? I think the answer is like definitely yes. Um, I think the the biggest active challenge that Watson needs to manage is having too many unique and exciting printings of the same card. So like, you know how you know that uh, Scalding Tarn is being reprinted in the set, right? I, I believe yeah. that's that's known. That's at this known point. Yeah. So how would you print Scalding Tarn into Modern Horizons Two in a way that makes players excited to have it? Right, and there's the question. And so, this this is a frequent topic of conversation in our Discord um, among the several hundred pro traders who are actively concerned about such things. How much is too much um, for premium printings? And my argument has always been: you have to look at what tier the card is. With a card like Soul Ring, you can get away with it two, three times a year, and as long as they are unique angles of attack on the product. So for instance, in Commander Collection Green, you get a Seb McKinnon Soul Ring. With the Black History Month Secret Layer, you get a completely different art style Soul Ring. If you go, if you do that with things like Arcane Signet, Soul Ring, etc., Mana Crypt, and what have you, you can get away with it for a certain period of time. But if you give people, if you take your commander decks from once a year to four times a year or five times a year and you have a soul ring in every single one, then the classic buy all the soul rings at a dollar and buy list them to Michael six months later doesn't work out as, as well anymore. Yeah, that, that's essentially stopped working out. Uh, we had a pricing note from one of the people who does pricing for me. Uh, hey, what should we do with Arcane Signet? Because, you know, the, the C20 ones that came out you know, six months ago, or like the fourth highest listing on Amazon now because there's just three newer versions now, um, which is just not healthy for the, the game on those sorts of channels. Um, in terms of like what is too much, I I know that it uh, it destroys the collectability part of the game in a lot of ways, but I would love to see Watsi use the mystery booster set booster planeswalker in the corner nomenclature on cards more often right so if if we have uh scalding tarn in mh2 the scalding tarn in hypothetically the scalding tarn in mm3 and mh2 should both just have a planeswalker symbol in the corner with a zendikar set symbol denoting that this is a reprinted copy of the same card I'm trying to make sense of what you just said. <laughs> so, so, so you know, how basically, I'm, I'm there's missing... a there's a first print copy of a card, right? Sure. Whatever, whatever the first time this card shows up in. Oh, I see. Okay. Any reprints after the fact should just be treated as a reprint copy. So you want them to use the like mystery booster, and I think the list yes. does the same thing, right? right? Okay, so. Does that mean that when they reprint fetches in a mainline product or shocks in a mainline product, 
down the road, a normal expansion, that those cards don't have the new set symbol. They have the original set symbol. Uh, it gets, so it gets complicated when you're looking at something like, is this card legal in standard Pioneer or whatever? But you have a lot of reprints where the reprint is not changing the card's legality. And I think that is something that, that should be happening in terms of minimizing uh, minimizing the overall SKU creep of the game. Uh, Sure, you know, which, we, is, which, is a ma- have, which is a major hassle for vendors that most players don't have any visibility on at all. Right. So, like, if I have a soul ring, you know, if you go to tcgplayer.com right now, and I'm going to pick that my soul ring is from Premier 2013 because I have have looked at this in the past. So I type in soul ring, and, uh, you know, the, the default TCG player search is relevance. So, let's see, on page one, the first one's commander, the second one's beta, the third one's the... the Black History Month Secret Lair, and uh, let's see, Chimera 2013 is not as bad as I thought, but it's like the uh, 16th Soul Ring listed. And if you have a, uh, you know, Commander Caldheim 1, that's like on page 2 already. So like, the fact that as a seller of these cards, you might be buying a card that just shows up on page 2 or 3 or 4, depending on the card, is way worse than somebody just saying, "Yeah, I need a soul ring. What do What do you got for soul rings?" And from like a a you know vendor math perspective, if you say, uh, "Yeah, our goal is to have between five and twelve copies of of a card that's that's five dollars," which is a reasonable take. It's not. I don't think it's unreasonable. You could now own like two hundred copies of soul ring, and just not even know that you're overstocked on the card. <laughs> right. Hmm. And like clearly, this isn't a problem today necessarily. But you go out five years, it's going to be a pretty big problem in terms of just how many different cards there are, and how how difficult it is to get a matching playset on on right. a card. And, and, so, and so the result, and, and so the result of your suggestion is that you could have six years worth of Commander Soul Rings that are all ex- all essentially the same printing. Yep. Right. Gotcha. Now, now there's another. There's a whole another <laughs> problem with all of this. Um, and the secret layer art styles and so forth that is from the player perspective, which is that the as fan is getting super <laughs> weird. Like Daniel Fournay po- posted like a potent, like a mock-up of a potential magic hand using a whole bunch of recent uh, art styles from different secret layers and other, pr- other products. And a-, a hand of magic at a commander table looking like what a hand of magic looked like 10 years ago is just clearly a thing of the past. It's it's bewildering. And and based on the recent announcements, next year you could have the guy's hand is like a Seb McKinnon soul ring, a Warhammer commander, uh, a Black History Month card, and so on and so forth. And it's just all over the map. I, I I don't remember which... Uh, Discord I put this in it might have just been I might not have put it on Twitter I might have just been my friend's Discord but you could have like okay uh, I'm going to cast my Optimus Prime and him and Ponyta are attacking <laughs> and you're like okay I'm going to block with my Negan and my Gandalf and then cast uh, the so Force true. Awakens okay well I'll counter it with uh, my you know Hermione says Wingardium Leviosa and it's like all of these will be like black border legal magic cards and it's gonna be like what what 
what is this game that I'm playing right it, now? It's funny because I can completely understand why they're doing it, but I, there are obviously members of their creative and branding teams that are just pulling their hair out because you're sacrificing a narrative within the game. The, the, the premise of I am this kind of wizard and you are that kind of, of planeswalker and we are casting spells against each other that fit into the, the, the world that is being described by those spells. The, the unity and narrative of that is being potentially being lost. Not in every game, but increasingly so as they expand on the premise. And then there's the other thing is that it makes perfect sense for Hasbro because for things like Monopoly, they do this all the time where they have... You know, they overlay brand spinoffs onto their Monopoly substructure and away they go. But you don't bring your Walking Dead Monopoly over and mix the pieces up with my My Little Pony Monopoly and play with my daughter. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can though, right? Those... You could, but <laughs> but nobody really does that. But if, but if your I... daughter wanted to play, you know, in your Walking Dead Monopoly board with, uh, with my you little know, Fluttershy. Sure. As your character, like that's that's fine. It's it's possible. I mean, I I feel like this is a, like a disingenuous comparison, and James knows that because it's like they are similar only on the most surface level comparison. They are absolutely not the same thing. Uh, I I am. It's 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 apples and carburetors. Let, let's sidestep this, Michael. Are you excited for them to be embrace like bringing these third party brands into the game? I am very excited. Uh, as long as they stay relatively germane to what the core Magic the Gathering uh, concepts are, more or less, I guess, um, in that the crossover event has a high amount of resonance with uh, high fantasy in general. Um, if there was a Game of Thrones crossover, I would not be upset to see it, right? Like the same sort of thing. Uh, whereas... If we if we start to see, uh, you know, the Seattle Seahawks uh, <laughs> secret lair, like, and like so, like the Walking Dead one, I'm not a huge fan of, um, because I do think that there's some some elements of feel, but at the same time, you know, you're giving people again more ways to experience the game that they want to be playing. Um, I think the the uh, 40k ones being a commander deck that's a box set is a phenomenal decision there because there's great like merchandising crossover appeal where you get to shelf it next to existing 40k material and get somebody who you know uh magic could literally be the game that is played while waiting for somebody else's 40k game to be finished yeah there's that's huge because those stores because anybody who's ever been in one of those stores they don't have anybody else's products in there there's some like third-party accessories, but it's mostly all their stuff. Oh, for yeah, for a dedicated uh, Games Workshop store, but for, even for a uh, a regular hobby store that that has um, that has 40k product and then also Magic, like they have the ability to interact with their customers more. Uh, there's also a collectible market for those for that, so it's it, it's great for a bunch of ways in that direction. Uh, but having having this like activity that you can do. Uh, adjacent to the other game you're playing is like just very healthy for, for game people to care about it. Um, especially as a commander deck, the, the Lord of the Rings boxes, I am fairly convinced will be a phenomenal, like three to five year hold. I know magic sealed product is dead. Reprints are everywhere. Don't buy sealed product to hold. Um, I think 
the Lord of the Rings boxes are going to be one of the best investments you can make in the next year because of how the customer base gets to interact with a product like that. How, how do you feel about the Dungeons and Dragons set that's on schedule for the summer? Uh, I think it's a non-issue. Um, I think we're going to see a core set with slightly higher theming elements than otherwise. Um, you know, if you, we already basically live in Dungeons and Dragons as, as a, as a setting. So like you, you might see, you're going to see the, uh, uh, God, the, the class mechanic, um, that we've already seen yeah, from, yeah, yeah. from Zendikar we, carry through the party mechanic. And like that, sure, that works fine. That's mechanically part of magic. And like, you might see some, some characters with like new names and backstories, but like, I don't think you're going to see a departure from what a magic set looks like. I think if you uh, went back 10 years and handed somebody that set file and said, Hey, what do you think of, of, you know, this expansion It's going to look and feel like magic almost through and through. I agree with that, but do you do you like those boxes the way the same way you like the Lord of the Rings boxes? No. So here's the thing with with Lord of the Rings, and I'm going to set aside the fact that like the decipher Lord of the Rings game from 15 years ago, those boxes are a bunch of money, and like the Harry Potter boxes from from 15 years ago are also like $500 a piece for a lot of them now, as well as the Star Wars TCG from then, from the the late 90s. Uh, if you just picked up Magic today, right and you know, you see this at the store level all the time. Hey, uh, I have a dragon deck. What should I? What what pack should I buy for cards for my dragon deck? You know, there's not a lot of ways that Watsi, as a producer of magic cards, can interact with the way that somebody is choosing to consume their product outside of some like very narrowly defined pre-constructed decks. You know, if you like dragons, you can get packs of dragons of Tarkir, which has you know 25, 30 dragons in it, whatever. And like that's kind of exciting, sure. But if you find out that there was a Lord of the Rings expansion five years ago and you want to experience what Lord of the Rings magic was like, what are you going to do? You know, you can you can go to your local game store and spend eight bucks on a Lord of the Rings pack and be really excited that you pulled a Gimli card that you can play, you know, in your in your dwarf deck because you like the, the new set out has a bunch of dwarves, whatever. Like there is a emotional feel for how somebody gets to interact with that brand when they see it interact with Magic the Gathering. See, I agree with all that, but I also think it might might be doubly true of the D&D, especially given the explosive growth in that brand for Hasbro over the last five years. I'm going to I'm gonna sidebar out of this one because I think we can make... Well, first off, you, you can make this decision like a year from now. You don't have to make a decision now on whether or not you want to buy into D&D, and you probably shouldn't buy into it right now because there's definitely going to be a better time to buy in. But it really is... Is this like a top-down, hey, we're making a D&D expansion? Or is this kind of a uh, a bottom-up, like, we're going to be incorporating some, some D&D characters and elements into gotcha. this game? And right? So you think it's going to be a, there's going to be a different feel to the Lord of the Rings set when, once we get there? I would expect Lord of the Rings to be a lot of, of top-down design, kind of like Rick from The Walking Dead, where you have... Where every, every single card is going to give create a feeling or emotional attachment to Lord of the Rings, uh, where you open you open a 15-card pack, every single one of those means something. And, like, I don't know how they're going to world-build in a way that is is open-ended and allows them to, to print, to revisit this sort of, sort of situation. But, like, if you have, 
you know, four different cards that are representative of like Riders of the Rohirrim. You know, that that's that's like that's like your three three for four white vigilance common. Can they can they print three power white creatures yet? I think they can. Um, you know, you might have uh, uh, you know, generic like goblin warrens as as you know a, a two two haste for for two in the deck in the set, and like it's going to have full on thematic elements, and I don't like. Like what would a what would a generic literal grizzly bears two two for two green common be in the D and D set versus in the Lord of the Rings set? In in terms of the character, in terms of yeah, in terms of how is how in, is this in D and D? It's an owl, it's going to be an owl bear for sure. So like if they if they do that, then yeah, like there's going to be a very strong resonance for the, for this expansion. Like I I fully believe it's going to be good. But if if they like, you know, put giant spider in the set as as a two four for four magic card, and like they're relying on this like thin theming where like instead of having, uh, you know, Krark son of Yogmoth, they have whatever necromancer is in uh, is in D and D instead. Like as as yeah, the mythic like like in, so in magic right now, right? The mythics are like the storyline characters you get some flavor text appearances in down rarity but like realistically if i ask you what the story is for zendikar rising you probably have a clue that it involves nissa and and whoever else and like yeah this is what they're trying to do and like like kaldheim doesn't have like character elements in a real way like you have the 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 three the three two black green elf that like can tutor for the other elf and like there's some interplay but if if you like reskin that card as uh uh as as a lord of the rings card this like black green look at the top five cards of your of your library creature you know might be uh you know nazgul's herald right where like there's just a very very strong connection sure i get where you're going with that I I I am notice notably not uh, engaging here because I have some opinions <laughs> on this topic, but they will easily fill an yeah, entire. Yeah, I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll get to them the eventually. Yeah. And, and and I'm already an hour past what time I was supposed to go to bed. Yeah, so we I am we, we can talk to, to Michael all night. I've got <laughs> plenty more questions in the silo, so we'll probably have to bring him back this summer, and we'll and we'll catch up. Um, Michael, thank you so much for coming on and staying so long with us and covering so much ground. Uh, really appreciate your insight and contributions on the vending and magic finance side of things. Uh, hope to have you back in the future. Yeah, I'd happily be back. Uh, if anyone else wants to hear more about me, you can follow me on Twitter at TOA Michael, or you can subscribe to me on Patreon, patreon.com slash TOA Michael. Uh, tier started a dollar if you just want to read my thoughts on uh cards and the world and uh you know give me a reason to spend more time on producing content de- de- definitely that worth works. the the trivial amount to get uh additional insights uh, from our man michael it was uh it was a lot of fun having you on here mike and uh i, I definitely feel like we could make a habit of this on some sort of semi-annual basis because this is uh there's a lot going on i feel like yeah and you have a lot of insights that you know we kind of miss 
a little bit in our world. Yeah, retail is definitely a, a different world overall in terms of how, in terms of which customers uh, are interacted with. Yeah. Uh, James, where can our listeners find you? You guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my occasional articles on mtgprice.com and my constant haunting of the Pro Trader Discord. And I'm Travis Allen. I am on Twitter at Wizard Bumpin, B U M P I N. Also, like to remind our listeners to check out the mggprice.com Pro Trader service for just $7.99 a month or $79.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Once again, MTG Fast, Fast Finance is probably sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool stuff in stock, including the best in Magic the Gathering single sealed product and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast, which brings us to the end of episode 261, the beginning of year six, and a great way to start it, Mike Caffrey. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And I think uh, we all were very glad you were able to, to join us this week. Thank you, Travis. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Tales of Adventure. And we'll see all of you next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. <laughs>